You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since to the ggtmc we are back and i sound much more energetic than i feel (laughs) (laughs) all right this week we are sponsored by diabolic dvd Uh, it was todd's turn to select a couple choices he picked uh kino lorber's release of bob le flambeau from 1956 directed by one jean pierre meville and uh murder rock colon dancing death yeah, so is that a colon or is that a semicolon? That's a colon. Uh, it could be a colon. <laughs> uh, AKA, AKA Giallo and Disco. That's right. Which really, I mean, that title's kind of, I think I like Murder Rock better. I do too, yeah. uh, to be honest. 1984, directed by Lucio Fulci, who I may have joked on the air, I'm not sure, but uh, when we started the show, um, I, I liked Fulci, never loved Fulci, um, but in the process of doing the show, I've come to appreciate him more, and also, we've covered a ton of Fulci films. Yes. We've covered a big chunk of them, so we seem to really have a lot of fun with everything past 1980, <laughs> which is also the era of Fulci I would have said, I'm like, well, we're not going to do those. <laughs> everything ages well, I guess, sometimes, but uh, we'll talk about that, too. Just a little bit. Uh, full disclosure, Will is not feeling well, so he was not able to make the show today. And uh, also, full disclosure, I have not watched Jack or shit uh, since last week outside of the films for the show, which I thought, man, I'm going to get a jump on it. I watched Murder Rock like either the next day or that day. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I'm getting a jump on this, man. I'm going to get some extra <laughs> no, movies no. in, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it didn't work out. Nah. As it tends not to. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, I haven't even watched the newest episode of Titans. I'm so behind. Uh, you know. What? Yes, I know. I've heard there's some some lads of the aqua flavor, potentially. There right. is. <laughs> so, I'll have to check that out when I get a chance. But I have enjoyed 
the uh, episodes I have watched, so we never really talked about it, but it was great to see like Trigon that. come to life. And yeah, I I thought uh, I it, thought that was kind of a letdown. It was it was a letdown. I'm not going to say that. It, it, it looked kind of silly, but was, I just thought to myself as I was watching, I was like, "Who ever thought that Trigon would be in any form?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Outside of a comic book form, you know. Just, yep. Ugh. He that would have been a great makeup for uh, Tim Curry or somebody to wear. Oh back, God, yeah. Back in the day, it always reminded me of the uh, the Legend Darkness character, Trigon. Yeah. A yeah, I mean his horns were more like antlers, but yeah. Uh, yeah. other than that. <clears throat> anyway, uh, I'll kick it over to you. If you watch anything else? Oh boy, have I? Uh, let's see. I watched Harmony Corinne's The Beach Bum 2019, oh, and um, it is a Harmony Corinne movie. Uh, so you have nothing but. Uh, weirdos on display uh for the entire runtime <laughs> and of course it revels in florida trash culture um or whatever you want to call it um the characters are uh are not all that well i just kind of have a hard time with them just because of the way that they are but it's a harmony corinne thing i mean it simply is um he you know this is the, the sort of thing he likes this is the sort of thing that he kind of uh makes mud pies out of so to speak um but what the film does well uh it does really well it, i mean it looks fantastic um there are moments that are truly uh truly funny um and it's really just it's it's an well it's a, i mean it's a harmony crin comedy it's uh it's as oddball as oddball can get without uh without crossing too many lines although it crosses more than enough uh more than enough that it needs to. Um, so yeah, is it as good as something like? I mean, for me, still to this day, I think that Spring Breakers was his best film, uh, and maybe that's because it's his most, uh, I think, uh, mainstream. Uh, uh, but yeah. at the same time, uh, I'm sorry, but for me, that's his, that's my favorite film. His that's his best work. Uh, this is is uh, comes in probably second or third. Um, but uh, he's still an interesting filmmaker to me. He's still somebody who I'm always interested in, even though, you know, there are certain aspects of his uh, personality and or uh, approach that I really just don't like. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what are you going to do? Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's that thing that you and I always talk about. I'd rather see something unique and shitty. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh, then, uh, you know, just see cookie cutter stuff constantly. So, uh, yeah, I'm always yeah. willing to, uh, to give him a go and, uh, try to, try to let go of my, uh, my own personal hangups, yeah. uh, this about one, this. This one looked like he was trying to go for a mainstream film. It, it is and it isn't. Um, it, it's, it's not as mainstream as you'd think it is. I mean, McConaughey just literally stumbles through the whole fucking thing. Um, <laughs> Drinking and, and smoking weed, uh, the entire movie. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, I mean, what are you gonna do? Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it's good. It's actually pretty good. Um, but uh, you know, not at the top uh, of uh, of current for me. Went from that to a rewatch of Sweet Smell of Success, 1957, and this thing is as good as it ever was. Um, such a cynical brutal uh movie so much going on and of course burt lancaster 
uh, one of my favorite actors of all time. Tony Curtis, I could give or take, but uh, Burt Lancaster is uh, is truly something to behold. Um, and I've heard stories that he was not exactly uh, the greatest off screen, uh, but at the same time, um, what he did on screen, I think, more than makes up for it. Mm. And he's got this really weird relationship with his sister in this that's always kind of bothered me. <laughs> um, it's like you know, I, I get that you, I get that she lives with you, I get that you're taking care of her, but man, you're like a little too hands on with that, uh, with her, with her relationships in that. Um, so yeah, there's that sweet smell of success. You can't go wrong with it. Uh, which brings me to Under the Silver Lake, 2018, for oh, Mr. Yeah. David Robert Mitchell, who brought us It Follows. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This. Uh, I wondered what he was up to, and this film kept popping up on things, uh, and I kept thinking, why? Why are they pushing this film so hard? This film's coming out of nowhere but evidently it was made and shelved for a little bit of time yes yeah and i didn't know who was the director and then i looked it up and i was like oh okay mm-hmm. so you know he had some buzz he got to make a movie and i've heard very mixed things about this thing and rightfully so uh it's a very mixed bag i think that it is and i've heard people uh well i've seen people discussing it uh off and on after i gave my initial opinion of it um, and maybe it's just that I'm missing it and maybe it's just that, you know, once again, uh, I'm allowing my personal prejudices and so forth to, uh, to color, uh, how I, uh, look at the, how I took the movie. Um, but I mean, that's also kind of unavoidable, but the thing is this, um, it's very good looking, uh, and it is, uh, I, I think I described it as really interesting nonsense. Um, it's so just bizarre, uh, and it's so what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I think that it's accurate to say that that it it does kind of look at the shallowness of. Uh, of today's culture or maybe just this particular character, uh, or maybe just, you know, these characters in general. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it, I think it does do that. Um, it's a movie that you'll think about more because you're trying to put together all of the oddity that you've just seen rather than anything else. I think when it, when it gets into like the conspiracy stuff and that, I think it's most interesting. Um, but it's also, not really all that concerned with that stuff. I mean, that stuff is just kind of a way to a way for the the main character to kind of uh, avoid and or excuse uh, his shitty lifestyle uh, and his shitty attitude. Um, and uh, like I said elsewhere, I, I found the hardest thing to swallow that any woman would be attracted to the Garfield character because he's truly, truly not a catch. Mm. Uh, so there's that. I think it's worth seeing. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing it again to try and piece together some of the stuff in there because there is a lot to take in. Um, but at the same time, it's two hours and 12 minutes and that is a long time to spend with, uh, with characters like these, uh, just to kind of, uh, fill in stuff that you may have missed. Um, so for me, I'd put it about on par with uh, It Follows, maybe a little bit lower. 
So if you're a fan of It Follows, I think you'll get something out of this. Uh, obviously, two very different movies tonally, um, but at the same time, they both have uh, they both have certain shared aspects that I think uh, people who like It Follows will get out of this one. Um, went from that to a rewatch of La Femme Nikita. Uh, 1990 from Mr. Luc Besson. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, this thing, I've always found it weird. I mean, this the movie looks great. It's a great story. But for some reason, I've always felt that it drags. Um, I feel that so way about I, all of Besson's films. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, pretty I much. Think so. I, think, I mean, uh, I think, I think they all... That, there's a couple that I think fly pretty well. Yeah, they, all, um, they always look great. Oh, they always do, yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, Checky Cario uh, here looks his least uh, his least strung out, yeah. uh, possibly ever. <laughs> yeah, they always look great, and they always look interesting, like something I would like. And then mm-hmm. I watch them, and I always find them a bit, I don't know, mediocre, really. Well, he's not, yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> he is uh, a guy who is really caught up in uh, that, uh, heavy metal sort of um, mm. mindset, yeah. and I mean heavy metal like the magazine heavy metal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he's not, uh, you know, he's he's okay with being a little trashy, but being very forgiving of uh, of things like reality or sense or uh, a decent sense of humor. Right, right. Um, so yeah, but yeah, but what this thing does well, it does extraordinarily well. Uh, and that's really kind of its saving grace, as it is with all of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I still like it. I, I still think that it's, it just, it, yeah, it's really weirdly paced uh, for me. Um, and I always found it kind of odd that there's really only, what, three actual action set pieces. They're good action set pieces, um, but that's it. So if you're going into this thinking it's balls to the wall uh, action, you would be sorely disappointed. However, the stuff that it gives you, it gives you very, very well, very, very nicely done. Uh, so for those of you who haven't seen it, I would uh, highly recommend it. But uh, yeah, I mean, you just got to be aware that it is a French movie made by a guy uh, in the 90s. So mm. it has all of those things about it. Um, and then finally caught Mark Hartley's Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon Films. And, uh, (laughs) I like this Mark Hartley guy. Uh, I think that uh, nobody really does, uh, niche, uh, film genre documentaries quite like him. Uh, he definitely has a certain style that he brings to it. Uh, this thing is lightning paced. Um, but in in that same respect. What's, I'm sorry? Almost too fast. Like, it's like, yeah, I want what, you to take a little bit more say. time. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Is it, yeah, it's, it might be a little bit too uh, too fast to, uh, it feels kind of glossed over uh, in certain aspects. And I can I could kind of understand that. Um, you know, he, he's a guy who wants to keep the, the thing rolling along. Um, so he's not going to get too much into, into too many details. But I think he gives you enough. And man, I'll tell you what. There are more Menachem Golan impressions per square foot in this movie <laughs> than you will possibly ever see the rest of your life. Yeah. It's hard to walk away from this thing, too, without wanting to do a Menachem Golan impression. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> and he's, he's easy to do impressions of because he's very – he's a, he was a character. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Larger than life. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the guys like that are always – 
I think everybody always has an impression of somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so uh, so yeah, I watched that, and uh, you know, I would almost say that I liked it. Uh, I liked it more as just a an entertaining, fast little nostalgia trip than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't yeah. think so. You feel like there's so many stories behind each one. Oh yeah, that they talk about that you kind of wish they would just take a moment and dig a little deeper. But yeah, you would almost, you almost want like a mini series focusing on each of their little uh, <laughs> yeah. their little genres that they uh, that they've got. Like an hour and a half on each one would be uh, something to say. But it's fun to hear. Uh, I always still remember the thing I take from that is first of all, it's kind of fun to see uh, what's his name Dudikoff in there and how much Menachem Golan really loved uh, Dudikoff. <laughs> like he was really pushing him hard. And then it's fun to, for Alex Winter when he talks about Charles Bronson, right? And his, uh-huh. his acting where he says it was akin to watching somebody play golf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scene calls for Bronson. He pulls up and he comes out. He does his thing. He takes off. <laughs> it's funny. He says that he said that uh, he would have a Jaguar drive him to the set, which was three feet away. <laughs> That's crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I mean but. Bronson never, I mean, he didn't do a lot of interviews, but he never made no secret of the fact that he didn't really, you know, those canon films he made, he made them strictly for money. He was getting $5 million okay. a picture. Yeah. And he was just making, you know, money hand over fist. Yep. And, you know, he Well, made, between him, Norris, and Stallone, you could uh, probably argue that they not only raised up, but sank uh, the whole excursion. Yep. Yeah. Because I, I would almost tend to think that had they stuck to low budget stuff, uh, that was, you know, not as star centric. Um, they may have lasted longer. May have, and that's a big may. It's a big may. Um, I think all those studios suffer from the same thing. They all get a taste of uh, a little bit of glory or something, and and they try, and they gamble, sure. and then they they lose their hats. You know, I mean, it's just. I remember thinking. I remember New Line back in the day was going to go under. And then they had the Lord of the Rings stuff, and I thought, well, man, they're going to be around forever. But then they ended up tanking out anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's all business at the end of the day, and businesses are very, well, they're very tricky. So it's easy for them to go away. I always feel like Canon will come back at some point. Like somebody will buy the rights to the name and just start. They may. I don't think it. it it's like all of these reboots. It's never the same thing. Ever, it, ever, yeah. ever, 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 ever. Yeah, it might come close. It may give you some little, uh, you know, kind of jolt of uh, nostalgia or something like that. But at the same time, it just never is. I wish. The only thing, the only thing, I'll be honest, the only thing that I've seen come close um, off the top of my head in recent memory would be the uh, the last Halloween movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I really enjoyed. Yeah, which I I did enjoy as well. Matter of fact, I almost bought it on 4K yesterday. Oh. I saw it used for ten bucks. I almost popped on it. Didn't do it, dude. That's a fucking deal. It is. It is. I almost popped on it, but I held off. I wanted to get a couple other things out of the way first. But, mm. um, yeah. I mean, it would be great. Like, like if I had the capital, like if I was a you know a billionaire or something, I'd I'd love to create a studio and just take all these actors I grew up with, like uh, the Bruce Willis's. Liam Neeson, all these guys that aren't really getting work right now. Uh, Liam Neeson still is, but I'm, I'm talking about you know just taking these you know because we we've talked about these uh, fifty and sixty year old action heroes movies. Yes, it'd be fun to just throw these guys in there. You know these guys that aren't working. I mean, the hell, it'd be fun to be like let's let's make an action exploitation film with Jack Nicholson, something he's never done. 
<laughs> Let's yeah, just do it. Yeah. Well, but, he has made exploitation, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. Just not an action. I'm talking. I'm talking about, you know, where he's like a, a balls out kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would be fun, you know, something he's never done. But it would be, you know, I, I would love to, for that genre to come back. I mean, it has kind of resurfaced in the way that we talk about these, you know, fifty and sixty year old man action movies, the the Equalizer and the Taken movies and the Gunman with Sean Penn, which we talked about a little bit, and mm-hmm. and all these movies, but. It'd be great for a studio to kind of put that under one umbrella and just make these uh, cheap action movies again. Because I don't the the newest generation of action stars, it doesn't feel like they've found outside of The Rock and maybe and really he's more of a family friendly action star outside of The Rock and maybe a couple others. They just they've had a hard time finding these type of action stars again. And it seems kind of crazy to me because you got the UFC and everything else. Now they try. I see a lot of low budget uh, <laughs> films with UFC stars in them, and then I watch the trailer and I'm like, "Oh boy, I'm not gonna yeah. watch, <laughs> not gonna watch that." <laughs> I know they try with Randy Couture, and they've tried with a few other folks, but it's just you know, you got to have that right mix, and they're really having a hard time, I think, finding those. Well, it really is one of those lightning in the bottle type of things. Yeah. Even Scott Atkins, who I like. Uh, I don't feel like he he just doesn't have it. No, he really doesn't, I don't think. Yeah. Physically, he's I mean, great. Physically, yeah. I was just going to say, physically, he could handle the stunts, he could handle the fights, he could handle the choreography, absolutely. He's just not, uh, he doesn't have that charisma that a Jean-Claude Van Damme or a Steven Seagal, or he just doesn't have that it factor to me. No, no, I would agree with that. And a lot of his films, I would agree with that, a lot of his films have the worst titles, too. Yeah, well... <laughs> It's like take a word. They, and they've, like, kind of, they've kind of run out of uh, of adjectives you could put before yeah. death, blood, or uh, fight. Scott so. Scott Atkins stars in Avengement. I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> Avengingness. <laughs> yeah. That's what it feels like. A lot of his film titles are like now. Mm-hmm. Scott Atkins stars in Bloodiness. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I know he's had a few good moments here and there, and they tried to make him. They tried to make him like this this B great action star. And, and I always kind of hope that they'll be interesting, but every time I watch a Scott Atkins movie, I come away feeling the same way. I come away feeling, yeah. okay, well the fight scenes were cool. Yeah. 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 That was it. Well, that's the, that's that the last one that I watched, I think was the, the hard target sequel. And I was just like, there's nothing here, man. Yeah. There's nothing here. Yeah, and it's a shame. Because there's good action directors out there, and there's, uh, sure. you know, and, and it's not like action films. You don't really need it to be fancy. It really just needs to be black hat versus white hat. It's all it has to be. Yeah, and, yeah but but at the same time, it does need to have, you know, yeah. it does need to be compellingly done. Yes. And, you know, you still have to bring something to it, even though you don't have to be, it doesn't have to be originality, necessarily. No. Uh, you do need to bring a certain level of craft to that sort of thing in order to do uh, to uh, you know actually entertain. Yeah, I thought we were on the precipice of uh, a whole new world of action movies when I saw Atkins and uh, Van Damme and Lundgren and that Universal Soldier uh, remake or that uh, sequel, and that was Peter Himes' son, I think. And I thought, well, this guy's pretty good with action and stuff. This is kind of fun, and uh, it wasn't the greatest film, but I certainly had a good time with it. And I thought, well, we're we're going somewhere. We're gonna we're gonna get a whole new rebirth of this, and it just kind of all faded. Mm-hmm. And even with like stuff like uh, I was just looking at it this morning while you were talking, like guys like Neville Dean and Taylor, and and all these kind of directors that were trying to kind of push the envelope, you know, uh, one either either for good or for worse. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, we're we're on the precipice of that, but it seems to have all kind of 
I don't know. Seems to have all kind of faded away again. Well, I think it flashed in the pan like everything else does today. Uh, I mean, okay, let's put it this way. There has always been trash cinema that's been seen as disposable, but it's never been seen as disposable as quickly uh, as it is today. I oh mean, my God, yeah. if you get 24 hours uh, in front of people's eyes, that's a fucking lot. Yeah, I thought uh, – And I think that that's really kind of the thing that does a disservice to those sorts of things to mm-hmm. not allow them to get their hooks in because you know, something like a hard target or something would play for a week or two in, a, in an actual cinema – Mm-hmm. Um, where today, you know, it, it hits Netflix and everybody goes, "Oh, look, this is on Netflix." And then a week later, they're like, "Oh, look, this other thing is on Netflix." <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah the uh, yeah, I thought about that the other the day. Turnover, with- the turnover, the attrition rate is so fast. Yeah, uh, f- that you can't, you're not allowed to absorb anything. You're not allowed to give anything a chance to grow. It has to be immediate now and then gone. Or else, you know, if it doesn't hit huge within the first, what, 48 hours of when it hits at all, uh, then you might as well just forget about it. Yeah, I thought when Rob Zombie's uh, Three from Hell came out, I thought that that would get into theaters and, and everything because it's a bit of counter-programming. Uh, right, that, that, that series has a fan base. Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects. Those films have a fan base. I thought it would get, but it's already, I think it's already came and went and it's already coming out on Blu-ray. DVD. So there you go. That, that's that's the world we live in now. I, I don't think there's any. There's not a lot of room for a lot of movies unless they have some type of uh, intellectual property backing. Yes, I saw that yesterday. Actually, walking around, I was in a mall yesterday, which is not a place I go very often. And I was in a mall, and I seen a group of older people going to the movies, and I thought, huh, that's interesting. You don't see people in their sixties and seventies going to the movies very much anymore nowadays. Why? And I think it's because the Downton Abbey film came out did it i believe it did anyway i I saw i saw advertisements for it i didn't know it was released yet anyway i just thought to myself well that's probably why it's a bit of counter programming and i remember one i was walking by and one older gentleman was like i have no idea what this is about and uh, i'll go because she wants to go (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. so i was like well you know that's that's the reason why we go to movies sometimes just to appease the wife or the husband and Go! I can still remember dragging my wife to uh, both Beyond the Mat, the wrestling documentary, and Gladiator, mm-hmm. which she enjoyed Beyond the Mat, and she did not enjoy Gladiator. <laughs> which, for the record, I didn't really like Gladiator that much either. <laughs> How uh, are we talking about the the Russell Crowe? Yeah, yeah. I've always found uh, it a bit overblown, and uh, okay, fair I've always, enough. I've always found it a bit. Uh, it's, I just, you know, I think it looks nice. I just think it, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I mean, you know, there's always that that counter argument to what we're saying here, which is, you know, these things exist. They're out there, and it's like, well, how many fucking hours do you have to dig and, and look? And yeah, you know, it's, it's hard enough trying to fit in the stuff that you've backlogged already. Yeah. Now you have to fucking play Indiana Jones to find something decent that's recent. Mm-hmm. Come on, give me a fucking break. Yeah, I mean, I don't really. I'm not. I'm sitting over here playing small violins for uh, like Steve Buscemi and Reservoir Dogs. I'm not over here doing it. Uh, for the a lot of these production companies who make millions of dollars and stuff and sure and everything, but I do just find it kind of sad, and I have for years, so even before the comic book boom, that you know you go to these multiplexes in certain cities, and you know you got fifteen screens, but you're showing five movies. It's just kinda, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just kind of saddens me a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll give you a listen. Back, way, way, way back when, um, my local cinema. Uh, who never does shit like this, uh, got the Fog of War, the Errol Morris documentary. Oh, yeah. 
And I was like, there's no fucking way that I'm missing an Errol Morris documentary on the big screen. So I went. There was one other person in the theater, and she was about twice my age. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I'm that's the reason that they don't do it. I get that. But at the same time, you know, how much of it is how much of it is uh, people's lack of interest and how much of it is um, the distributors and or uh, the studios lack of backing, lack yeah. of support, lack of uh, advertising, lack of generating any – because, again, you get into, you know, everything is so fast. There's such a fucking massively, wickedly fast turnaround on everything you can't give anything room to breathe. You know, yeah. there's there's no fucking if the Exorcist came out today, there's no fucking way in hell that it would be playing in theaters for two years past its release date. Oh hell no. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if it made it two weeks, uh you'd be lucky. And that's really kind of the shame of it. That's for me, that's and, and yeah, I get that this is old man yelling a cloud shit. I get it. <laughs> but at the same time, that doesn't make it any less sad, I don't think. Yeah. And I agree with you. It's a combination of both. It's a combination of advertising, marketing, and just general interest. Yeah. I just think, you know, the movies in the 80s and the early 90s became a young man's game. I think older people stopped going to movies. And uh, whether that's good or bad, I don't really have a say because I was part of the younger generation going to movies. But I will say that it, it just feels more and more like films just cater to the youth and they don't really cater to older and if they do cater to older people you're right they don't really people don't really go to the movies i've I've done the same thing i've went and seen a few documentaries and i'll i'll be honest with you i'd be amazed if any documentary i've seen in 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 a theater in the last 10 years has had more than five people in the theater yeah and everybody was either older than me or around the same age as me uh you just never see young people in a documentary film never you never see young people in a documentary. Well, no, because they're they're raised on quote unquote reality TV at home. Yeah. So yeah. they get all of that. They get all of that shit, and I'm putting finger quotes on all of this. They get all of that shit at home, so you know they don't have to. Uh, what the hell would I want to go see that for in a theater? Yeah. So anyway, here we are again, Todd and Sammy, on our milk crates. Yeah, I keep saying it. I keep saying I'm not gonna. <laughs> And every fucking week I get into it. Well, at least, like like we said, there is some positivity, at least, you know, for me, because I am interested. I know you might not be, because I know you're not a big fan. But for me, at least I will get to see Three from Hell, because it will come out in a physical format, and I will check it out. Um, and at least I'll get to see Rambo 5, and, and I'll get to see these movies, uh, you know, because thank God for, you know, and as much as I complain, but thank God for streaming services, thank God for physical media, and let's hope that never goes away, because... <laughs> Uh, you know, I'd, I'd hate to live in a world where there wouldn't be this library of uh, films to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, all right, I think we've 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 espoused enough uh, <laughs> of our uh, knowledge on film theaters and what we think. And by the way, the popcorn, man, come on, step it up. <laughs> oh, dude, I haven't I haven't bought the popcorn in a theater in I don't know how long. I might get a coffee anymore when I go in. That's yeah. it. Well, they're the one we got one here now that serves beer, which is nice. Uh, there is here's the funny thing there is a uh a cinema draft house here oh really not not like an alamo cinema draft house it's just like its own little indie thing that's nice um 
and they do that, and I have never set foot in the place. Yeah. I mean, I set foot in it back when it was a regular theater, but I haven't set foot in the place since it was turned into a, a draft house because their times are never conducive to my schedule. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd, the, there, there's been a couple of dinner theaters. Uh, not you know, not like dinner theater like you go and see, but yeah. there's been a couple of yeah, those yeah. come, have food, uh, watch a movie type things pop up in Kentucky over the years. Mm-hmm. But they never really last. Um, and no draft house, obviously, here because we're a smaller town. Uh, no, no, like, well, certainly no Alamo draft house, but no. But I've noticed that some of these big theaters now are, you know, they're trying to cater to that audience. They're trying to get young people. And when I say young people, I mean people in their 20s, not so much teens, obviously, but they're trying to get that crowd of folks who are out on a Friday night, come in, have a couple beers, watch a flick, you know, that kind of audience they're trying to get back yeah. into the theater. That's what it feels well, like. Well, I think that I think the part of their problem is that, that you know, that it takes a certain amount. It's not a casual thing. That's a, uh, you know, you don't just drop in and watch a movie. You have to have a certain amount of. Uh, time available. You have to have a certain amount of desire to want to watch uh, a certain thing. It's, yeah, it's not like just going to a sports bar and something's on the TV there, and you have a few with your friends. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because it's a little more, it's a little more uh, attention. Yeah, because there's so needed. much available. There's so much available. It's part, it's a it's a mixed bag. I mean, you got so much. I mean, a lot of people don't go to the movies because they turn on Amazon Prime and boom. Sure. You know, or they turn on Apple TV, or they turn on. I mean, there's just so much. It's hard, and I get it because. I'm I'm part of the problem there because there's sometimes I'm like yeah yeah that means I gotta drive 15 miles I gotta yep. put, I gotta put underwear on you know <laughs> pants I gotta take a shower sometimes Should probably shave something <laughs> you, know, you know but I, I I get it you know anyway I expect any time and <clears throat> and I believe it or not there was a time when I wouldn't have supported this but uh, there's a time now when I would uh, some streaming service to come along charge I don't know. 30 40 50 bucks and it'll be a streaming service and boom you watch new releases at home boom just like that well i know there's a couple times that they've done that day and date sort of releasing mm-hmm. uh and i think the most the, the, the most prominent one i could think of was there was a couple of soderbergh movies that yeah. i think that they did that with yep um i don't know how well it went i'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not all that well but then again it's soderbergh so you know for as populist he can be uh, just as esoteric, um, so you know I can kind of you know understand why that didn't take off, but uh, I could see that being a thing for uh, yeah. for like more wide uh, more wide releases. I totally see it coming. I see it coming. I said just like uh, oh, yeah, it's wrestling pay per views or UFC fights, people will buy that, and, and you know maybe they'll invite some friends over, charge everybody five bucks, put in for the pay per view, boom, movie night at the house. Yeah. I, I totally yeah. see it happening, but well, once the once the microchips off. are all in your head, uh, you know, <laughs> it ain't gonna fucking matter anymore. Because I did notice the other that's day that's the end of everything, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, the uh, I did get an email the other day for new Alexa devices, and one of them was eyeglasses frames, and I'm like, this is interesting. I wonder what wonder what that means. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if I put those on, say, you know, Alexa, show me uh, the latest video from Sarah J. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who I don't know who that is. You don't. You don't? <laughs> are you being? Uh, are you being? Uh... <laughs> I might be being coy on that. One. <laughs> yes, exactly. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I just thought to myself, oh, but then I think there, there's something slightly different. Like it'll give you the weather and some other stuff. C- color me morbidly curious. 
but uh, I don't I'm, know. I, I'm more trepidatious about shit like that. Uh, and you can call me a Luddite. You can call me whatever you care to. I'm sorry. I don't like the idea. And I, listen, I already do enough of it now uh, <laughs> yeah. where I give away my my privacy and my freedom and all that other shit every single day. Yes. So, uh, you know, to give up more of it and to give up more of, you know, I, they say, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, it's no big deal. But nah, it really kind of is a big deal. And the ramifications are further are wider spread than you know you would at first think yeah it sounds great but you know these things they do have a way of becoming um a little more insidious uh than uh, than they're presented as i'm sorry they do every mm-hmm. time and then and then everybody's shocked when oh my god they've been spying on me with alexa oh my god there was <laughs> really you fucking put the camera in your fucking house all on your own yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you walked into it Exactly, and I, I just I don't like that sort of thing. I really, really, really don't, because it's it's just it it is a it is it's only a few. It is a hop, skip, and a jump away from potentially bad things. That's my opinion. Yes, indeed. All right, Todd's done. We're gonna <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take a break. We made it. We made to go towel off. Yeah, we made an intro out of this intro anyway. We made it an adventure. All right, uh, we'll be back. We're going to talk about uh, a little Bob Flambeur first. Every time I say his name, I know it's Bob the Gambler yes. not, and not Bob the Builder. Uh, <laughs> Bob yes, the Gambler. Yes, <laughs> the, uh, but I, I always think of food. And I guess it's the French oh, way. Le Flambe. Le Flambeur. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk some Le Flambeur right after this. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. The boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, son, I've made a life out of reading people's faces and knowing what the cards were. By the way they held their eyes So if you don't mind my saying I can see you're out of aces For a taste of your whiskey I'll give you some advice So I handed him my bottle And he drank down my last swallow Then he bombed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet Face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game Boy, you gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them That's right Know when to walk away You gotta know when to walk away, man uh, I want some chicken now <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of them fucking roasters, yeah. baby uh, Some of you may know I've talked about it over the years That I've, uh, you know, used to play music And I used to play in bands and stuff And uh, one of the songs I used to play to warm myself up uh, on guitar was that song. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I used to uh, do that because, uh, first of all, everybody in the bands that I was in hated the song. So <laughs> there's a sick part of me that was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to piss you guys off again. And then there's another part of me that I had always, uh, just like my film-loving life, have always loved the narrative uh, songs. There's a part of me that yes. loves Songs with a narrative, and of course that one hits all the sweet spots, right? So the western and 
yep. and all that stuff. And, and uh, I'll defend that song to the day I die. I think it's a good, tr- a good song. It's, I do too. It, it'll, it'll live forever. 1978, Kenny Rogers, The Gambler. Yeah, so. Hmm. I didn't realize it was that late along. But then again, yeah, the way that it's produced, it kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, it sounds a. Uh, it has that wooden instrument in it, that one yeah. thing where you. You know? I don't know what that's called. I can't remember. I remember being in class when I was in school and the best day still had music classes. And I remember we had that. And every now and then I would play it. And which meant I just banged the shit out of it. <laughs> but uh, this is that's one of the few songs where I remember thinking that thing's prominent in there. <laughs> anyway, now to another type of gambler, Bob Le Flambeur, 1956, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. Uh, plot synopsis: After losing big, an aging gambler decides to assemble a team to rob a casino. So what you get here is you get a gambling movie and a heist movie. Yes, and uh, and you get it all through the eyes of uh, Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, and this is very early in uh, his career. Am I right? Am this I... was this was, I believe, uh, his third uh, feature. Yes, and I think this was also the first one. I, I might be wrong about this. This might be his first one where he did everything himself. Like he owned the studio, he built the studio, that produced it, all of that stuff. I might be wrong about that. It might yeah. have been one earlier than this. But looks like he he made a short, and he made one, two. It looks like he made three films before this. But okay. Uh, this came out in uh, '56, and uh, but yeah, you, I think you might be right that this might be. I think this might be the first one where he bought that warehouse and started making movies. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is because we'll talk about this as we go along. But his films became uh, they became more insular as they went along. Uh, mm-hmm. He only made 14 movies. He worked from '46 to '72, um, and died kind of prematurely, I think, of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he kind of, you know. Like a lot of the filmmakers we love and have all loved, uh, these auteurs of some sort, you know, he's kind of inferred by other filmmakers in a way because um, what I do know about Melville and, and I've, I've, we have we've only reviewed a, I've only reviewed a couple Melvilles on here maybe maybe only one for me I know they did the Samurai but I was not yeah. able to do that well that might have been you and Will maybe that was me and Will yeah. yeah I wasn't able to do that I love that one for obvious reasons but uh, I didn't get to do it I did do. Uh, uh, Le Cercle, Le Cercle Rouge. I did mm. do that one with Will, but I, that's all I've done. So I haven't done this. is my only the second time I've done it. But uh, what I do know about Melville and what I was going to speak about back in the Le Samurai, epi- Le Samurai episode was he was uh, one of the first kind of uh, film geek filmmakers. He was. Uh, and it's always interesting to me the love hate relationship that he developed with the guys who uh, at first brought him to prominence in Cahiers du Cinema. Yeah. Uh, because he was a darling of the new wave. Uh, but then, you know, his movies were so populist and American that they were just like, oh, fuck this guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they really just started shitting on him. He had a, a, you, you know, you get into spats with people who, uh, you know, originally uh, championed him, which yeah. is really weird. But um, yeah. I also, there's, there's, I also always find it interesting that um, he's considered new wave because he's so retro american mm-hmm. uh it's not even funny so yeah. he's yeah. the least sort of avant-garde sort of filmmaker even though the way that he approached uh these american uh tropes or whatever you want to call them um was really kind of uh, unique uh because it was always i mean obviously it's still through a, a french filter mm-hmm. uh and, and through you know his uh, specifically so yeah yeah it's very interesting and uh you know i mean his films are they're very influential, and you can see it in a lot of filmmakers. And we'll talk about it as we go along. I'm gonna, 
I know you're a huge fan of this one, so mm-hmm. I'm going to let you lead on this one. Uh, okay. Instead of asking, I'm just going to let you lead on it because that's uh, fine. I know you'll have more to say about it than maybe I will. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> you never we'll see. know. Sometimes I think I'm being deep and I'm, you know, like a bottle. Um, no, that was in our intro. Uh, we, we, yes, we, we, we that were, was done. We, we already were, did that. Part. Yeah, we were two puddles. Don't worry, I could, <laughs> I could always one up that. That's a two puddle podcast. That's the mm. <laughs> indeed. Yeah, two middle aged puddles, me and you. you <laughs> Off my lawn. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll jump in here. Um, the first thing you notice, and that, that I, the way that I take it, is that uh, the film's told like a fairy tale. You get a narrator uh, who tells us specifically that Bob is both young and old, and already a legend. Yeah, um, that's uh, so, Melville, by the way, the narrator. Yes, yes, yeah. uh, yes, it is. Uh, and the movie itself lives in an Americanized mythic France. Um, even the uh, the after hours xylophone player plays the film's theme. Right as Bob's walking through the uh, the club yep. after losing all of his money and uh, playing cards, uh, and Bob and his little cohorts kind of live by night in this sort of a dead zone, uh, while the rest of the uh, the area the and I'm going to mispronounce this, so apologies to anybody who speaks French. The Montmartre uh, uh, area is yes. it Montmartre or Montmartre? I, don't I think know. It, I think it's just Montmartre. Is it? I think it is. I, that's what I'm going with. Um, so. It's a weird word to say, but uh, as an American, yeah. as, as well, they Americans, put those extra fucking R's and E's in there. Yeah, no. As Americans, uh, the French language has always been difficult for us. <laughs> yes. Well, we don't. We, we feel like it's a little too, uh, a little too uh, shishi. Yeah. Like it's, for me, it's for like me, that. It's like that scene in uh, in uh, uh, Running Scared with uh, Gregory Hines and uh, <laughs> yeah. And, Bill, and uh, oh, Billy Crystal put it talking about croissants. Yeah, I didn't he said, think, so. I just got bagels. I didn't think that uh, we'd be bringing up Running Scared with uh, Greg Rands and uh, <laughs> Billy Crystal in a Melville review. That's interesting. <laughs> but now the, uh, the there's something about the French language. It's the heavy use of the u of the u. Uh, yes, that uh, always makes me feel like I'm saying stuff wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, I, I guarantee you, nine out of ten, I am. Yeah. Um, just saying, but, Bob. Know, just saying, it, Bob it, Le Flambeau. Yeah. Just saying, it makes me feel like I'm insulting French-speaking listeners, and <laughs> I do not mean to be. But uh, remember, French is not even a remotely a language that you know where I'm, where we're from. No. It no, does no. not come up. Now, Will was here. Different story. He would, yes. you know, he would help us out a little bit. But this is, we got two middle. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more this. southern, but yeah, we're a little bit more. You're, you're mid east. I'm a little bit more, you know, southern. So yeah, we, you know, this French stuff is, you know, <laughs> mayonnaise is as far as I go. <laughs> oh, uh, so yeah, the first of many. Um, so yeah, it's it's a sort of dead zone that uh, that these guys live in, and this is this is Melville's kind of sweet spot. You know, this isn't. This isn't particularly glitzy or glamorous, um, and most of the many nightclubs in the film feel kind of weary uh, and just dead. Like every time they walk in there, there's just people kind of hanging out. Uh, everything is sort of laconic, um, and it's very it's very like casual sort of underworld uh, thing that uh, that uh, Melville is constructing here. And this was taken from a novel, although um, if I'm thinking if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, it doesn't. It, it strays pretty far afield uh, of the uh, the novel, as most of uh, Melville's adaptations did. Um, so, 
Bob's walking along uh, in the uh, the early morning there, and he first sees the uh, Anne character, uh, who was played by crap, I can't remember her name. Uh, It's Isabel. um, Now I gotta look it up. Damn it. Uh, And it's not gonna give it to me. You gotta be kidding. You know who, to kind of fill in some space here, you know who, I know John Woo is very well known for being a Melville fan, and I know there's quite a few others that you could argue. I mean, even Quentin Tarantino, who does some of his own narration sometimes. Uh, they got in, in the bio here, they got uh, Volker Schondorf, Volker Schlondorf, but uh, I think Volker, I think he worked with Melville. I don't know if he really aped as much of uh, Melville's style as... Uh, as some of these others, but like Scorsese, there's a little bit of Melville there. Yeah. Obviously, Johnny Toe, there's a bit, bit of Melville or a lot of yeah, Melville. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that's kind of common amongst all those filmmakers and amongst Melville himself, and we can kind of bring this up to kind of fill some space here, is his love of male characters. Yes. And his somewhat lack of. Well, I mean, I say this, and I don't mean to say this is something terrible, but it is true. His lack of any interest, really, outside of a sexual one in the female characters. Yes, well, and that's very interesting when that comes in here with the Anne character, played yeah. by Isabel Corey, by the way. Yeah. I found it. Uh, and I kind of had it in the back of my head, but I just well, I wanted to be sure. So anyway, uh, he's walking along. He sees her get on a motorcycle with an American sailor who sounds just like Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> hey, baby. Uh, hey, baby. Hey, babe. Hey, babe. <laughs> you want to get on the back of my bike? So. Uh, and the thing here, it, it becomes really, really odd, this relationship that he develops instantly in his mind and then, you know, develops on throughout the story. He instantly falls for her, I think. Uh, but here he seems sort of offended uh, that she's just taken off with a guy like that. Um, and, you know, she's she is – the Anne character is young and naive, but she doesn't act like a babe in the woods. Uh, it's like they're – gears turning behind her eyes um in every scene that she's in she's just kind of plays well i'll get to that but uh first of all her relationship with bob is odd uh he obviously likes her but he holds himself back acting like a father figure he wants to protect her um well and, and well, this all comes because of because of his because of his paternal feelings towards paulo yeah uh you also father, get the sense though that he's been burned before like by females or whatever so he always kind of keeps his distance like you know his well love, sure but at the same time he's a hopeless romantic he yeah. can't help it. yeah his love is you know cigarettes and cards yeah and yeah. you know he wants he probably wants something more but realizes that his real passion he probably has no room for a female either in his life right 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 it's a, um it's a, it's a subtle thing but you can see it there it, you can, you can, and once once the uh, once Paulo kind of takes up with Anne, uh, he backs off obviously and acts more like a a dad uh, than anything else. And you know, he, okay, so yeah, the the Paulo character, uh, he glorifies Bob. Bob had um, worked with Paulo's father and uh, had a little bit of trouble there. Um, so now he kind of has taken Paulo under his wing. And tries to steer him away from guys like uh, pimps, who Bob really doesn't like because they're always trouble. Yep. Uh, and they certainly are in this film. Yep. Um, so <laughs> yeah, they're big time trouble in this film. <laughs> yeah. So the film kind especially of especially for Bob kind, in particular. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the film kind of uh, moseys along um, until uh, a person brings up 
the uh, the heist piece of it, which I'll get to. But first thing I want to do is talk about Anne a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she has a coldness to her, like I said. Uh, you know, even when she's getting undressed for uh, for Apollo, she's mechanical. Uh, she doesn't look at him. There's no seduction. Yeah, I think that in certain ways she's a pure femme fatale. There's no facade. Uh, or that's what, you know, that's at least what she wants people to think. Yeah. Uh, you both hate her, uh, because she does do certain things in the film where you're just like, really, uh, you can't quite wrap your head around it, but at the same time you can, because this is simply the way that she is. Um, and of course it'll come back to, uh, to bite our main characters in the ass, uh, hence femme fatale. I think that uh, Roger Duchesne is perfect for the uh, the Bob character. Um, he is. I think he he does. He first of all, he's got a a, a, a fantastic head of hair, um, <laughs> yeah. and I think that he has this real ability to do sort of stern and warm uh, with the same expression. Yeah. Um, did, and I did, think it really, it really, really works well for him. Did you not get though watching this? And I'm not, you know, being slight about it because I do think it's a great performance. <laughs> I almost got an amazing Kreskin vibe from. Uh, uh, I, I was going to say uh, Criswell, but yeah, uh, yes, yeah. Okay, yeah, Criswell, yeah, Criswell's better. Yeah, the Ed Wood. Uh, there, there's, yeah. a, there's a bit. <laughs> and, and again, it has nothing to do with it. But I'm watching it. And I'm thinking. Was this guy in an Ed Wood movie? <laughs> <laughs> so I go in to start looking at Roger uh, Duchesne's uh, uh, filmography, and uh, there's not a lot out there about him, but uh, there is uh, some some information out there about him. And evidently, he was a bit of a he's a bit of a um, character too, and uh, did some uh, did some uh, seedy things himself in real life. Cause, oh, yeah, yeah, because his film career didn't last very long. It was kind of like there and gone, but. Uh, sometime during the war, he got involved in some things with uh, some type of resistance, and there's these rumors that he may have uh, ordered some executions and things like that. And it's it's a really weird history and something I can't really delve into here because I didn't get all of the gist of it. But it explains why he kind of disappeared from films because this is maybe his second to the last or third to last film he ever starred in, or he was ever in, I believe. This is like one of the last ones. Huh. And. Uh, I kind of was like, well, it's kind of interesting because this is a starring role, really. You know, I mean, he's yeah. he's the main, he's the titular character here. I thought he would go on to stuff, and he's got a look. I totally agree with you. He's got a look, and if you go back and look at his uh, his uh, younger photos, he was a handsome man. Um, but uh, yeah, he just kind of went away. Just kind of huh. disappeared. So yeah, that is that's odd. Yeah, there's a lot out there about uh, not not a lot, but there's some stuff out there about him. Um, in his uh in his career, but not really much on IMDb. If you're looking for information there, not a lot there. Uh, but uh, he was arrested for quote unquote in 1944 for having worked with the Gestapo. Ooh. So he may have been involved in some, uh, as you can imagine, some seedy things. Yes, that would be slightly underhanded. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Uh, so okay. There's, I mean, he, uh, he has a good run. he had a good run, but he like I said, Le Flambeur was. Yeah, it was the second to last movie. He only made one movie after this. Girl Merchants, which just sounds like uh, sounds like a CD movie. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. But that, it's, it's interesting because he really is a standout in this movie, right? I mean, he the minute he comes on screen, I think he's very interesting. He's interesting to look at. I think he does yeah. a lot of great uh, – there's a lot of great moments where he 
conveys emotion without really showing a lot of emotion. He's got. He's just well, got- he he's he is he is from uh, from my perspective, and this is why this is my favorite Melville movie. He is the pattern uh, for all of these male assassin or gangster or action hero types that would come afterwards. Yeah, he may be where these yeah. these guys are pure business. Yes. There's no, you know, there's no room they're, in their life for anything else. Yes. This is about the process of how they do their job. This is, mm-hmm. you know, they get things done. They have discipline. They have focus. That's the Bob character. Yeah, yeah and then, um, and really, that's the that's what Melville brought to cinema. Really, is yeah. he, he is the one. This this character in particular, but he is the one. What Melville brought was the the calm, cool assassin, very masculine character. Right. Uh, who has I, no time for nothing but the work? And I think that it's kind of <clears throat> it's kind of ironic that it would take um, guys like Wu and Tarantino and that for the younger generation to become aware of Melville at all, because that's how I became aware of him was through mm-hmm. those guys. Yeah. So it's funny that the people yeah. that he influenced are what brought people back to Melville in the first place. I read a review of a Walter Hill film, and I think it might have been Roger Ebert. Um, and Roger Ebert or somebody dropped a Melville's name, and immediately I was like, "Huh, who's this Melville guy?" Right. And right, the, only, right. the only thing I could see back then, really, at a video store, was either Unflick or uh, Le Samurai. Those were the only two I could ever rent. Uh, the, yeah, there was like nothing. Yeah. Um, obviously, Samurai meant something to me. Le Samurai, I got gray market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the yeah. only way that I could get. It was the only way that I can get it. And I wasn't on the review, but I love that film for a lot of the things that I love movies for, which is its quietness, mm-hmm. its very direct storytelling, and uh, and obviously I kind of took it as an online handle, not just from that film, but from my love of Kurosawa films, and mm-hmm. I kind of meld the two together, and that's where I kind of took the online handle from, and that's where it all comes from. But it's very interesting that you know what you say because I, I think Melville. I think everybody, except for I think more modern generations now, because we have they have so much access to stuff. But I think all of us, especially of our generation, came to Melville via John Woo, Tarantino, maybe yeah, Walter absolutely. Hill, or uh, maybe even uh, oh, what's his name, man? Milius. Eh, maybe Milius a little bit. Milius maybe even more masculine than Melville. <laughs> mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, he might be more in love with his characters than his male characters, than even Melville was. And Mil- Milius would also, it, with Melville, it was always about the criminal element. With Milius, I yes. never really feel like it's it, it's not always about the criminal element. A lot of times it's just about the attraction men have to each other. And not, not sexual, but... True. Michael, True. Man, Michael Mann, that's the other name I'm looking for. Michael Mann, and well, and Johnny Toe, we forgot about Johnny Toe, but those these, 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 these directors, it's very important that the men respect each other. In some yes. way, shape, or form, and it's it it borders on sexual attraction, without ever going there. It's 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 very much about men who want to be with men, and women who are just these objects on the outside. So it, it can be seen as misogynistic filmmaking. However, I don't know if it's as much that as it is the generational thing. You know, you're talking about Melville, the time when he grew up and the time when he was an adult. Uh, of course, nobody even probably knew what misogyny was. Um, but obviously it was about men to him and men doing things. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, these films uh, probably struggle in some ways to find certain audiences now, but, uh, 
you know, they're still, you know, and rightfully so, they're still well-respected. Sorry, got off on a tangent there. No, 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 not at all. I uh, love it. Um, so, okay, one thing that I noticed is that there's a lot of checkered patterns in, uh, in the film. Yeah, there is. A lot of black and white tiles, like <laughs> yeah. a lot. Yeah. Uh, which is which which is extremely French to me. Yeah. Um, I thought I was watching a so, Tom Petty video or something. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> hey, <laughs> don't come around here no more, Sammy. Yeah. Uh, so then the big score comes up and Bob changes. Uh, he all of a sudden becomes you know focused. He's all business. He stops playing the one arm bandit. Uh, he stops playing cards, and now. He wants to pull Apollo in where he warned him off other criminal elements previously, um, you know, going, going to prison with his old man and all that. And now the film kind of takes a turn. It becomes something a little bit different. Uh, it goes from simply building on Bob's life as sort of this degenerate loser gambler um, to being, you know, a criminal. Uh, like a um, – eh, I don't want to use the word mastermind because I'll get into that a little bit more. But um, – and this is one of the things that I like about about the film, uh, and it's that it's both raw and slick. Uh, you could tell it was done for peanuts, but you could also tell that Melville de- has a very definite vision, uh, and he sticks to it. There's a little bit of a hint of uh, neorealism to it. The the location shooting is great, um, and he gives you a real feel uh, for the place um, for Montmartre. Uh, and this is also the first of Melville's films that focuses on the job, right? Like how exactly to pull off the robbery. Um, but it's also different from his other films in that Bob, uh, the Bob character is both in and separate from the underworld. Mm-hmm. Like in the other movies, these are all like, you know, um, uh, Died in the wool criminals. Uh, yeah. This is what they do. They're thieves. You know, this is, you know, they're professionals, blah, 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 blah. Bob is in that, but he's not in that. Hmm. He was a thief, but he's, now he's a gambler. Yeah. So he kind of like trods the both worlds. And that's the sort of thing that I like, that sort of um, dichotomy that uh, that always comes up um, or that can come up uh, in, in films like this. Um, but yeah, this is the first time that we actually see uh, that there's an actual plan going on. We start seeing the details of how they're doing it. He, you know, draws up plans. He he spray paints a field uh, to mimic the building that they're gonna that they're gonna ransack. Um, <laughs> the whole time I'm and, thinking, man, if a cop comes along, they got <laughs> you got some pretty good proof you're leaving on the ground here, Bob. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, well, it probably is. It's uh, probably uh, would wash off with water. Uh, a little bit of rain. Well, again, um, I'm informed by other movies too. You know. Yeah. 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 Nobody would be uh, looking for that. <laughs> but it, it, but it's one of those things where, like, yeah, you could actually see them going through the process. Uh, and this is, like I said, this is the thing that uh, that Melville did arguably better than anybody else ever did. Um, so there's that. Uh, you get Howard Vernon showing up in a pair of Jodfers. Yeah. Uh, and, man, that's a set of Jodfers. And, yeah. of course, you know, Vernon has a... Um, a face that was made for film, uh, yeah, he and he was also he was also a really good actor. Uh, he was, he was. Besides he's, that, even though even though I don't think he really gets credit outside of you know because what? of his linkage to Jess Franco. That's it. That's it right there. Uh, I think that unfortunately that kind of takes him down a peg in a lot of people's eyes, and I, I think that's very unfortunate because I do think he was a good actor. I mean, if you saw like um, 
the Silence de la Mer, uh, mm-hmm. the other Melville movie where it's about um, you know the the Nazi officer who goes to live with these two French, uh, this French father and his daughter. Um, you know, he really does an outstanding job in that. Yeah. Uh, if you're interested. Yeah, but. he's a uh, he was he had a great face, and he was in a lot of uh, a lot of low budget uh, horror films. Yeah. Uh, but man, yeah. he worked a lot because of his face. I think mostly. Uh, those yeah. Kind of, those eyes he had were just they were they were interesting. He's just, and again when he popped up in this, it was like a nice. I had forgotten he was even in this, and so when yeah, he popped yeah, up, yeah. I, I first saw him, I was like, huh, he kind of looks familiar. <laughs> and then I started looking through. I'm like, oh shit, man! <laughs> it's Howie. It's Howie. I think he, I think he, I think he might have had a, a. Did he have a, a mustache or something in this? Too? Yeah, he's got a mustache in this, and he smokes a pipe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he's covering it all up. Yeah. Um. So the thing about the plan is that they're tinted, you know, Bob, tinted glasses he wears most of the time too. So it's yeah, kind of hard you can't to see, see his, those eyes. Yeah, his distinctive eyes. But mm-hmm. yeah, if you guys have seen any Jess Franco films, there's a good chance you've seen this guy. If you don't know who we're talking about, there's a Really good chance you've seen him because he worked with uh, Jess Franco a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the thing about Bob's plan is that uh, <laughs> I found this kind of funny. They seem to contact every single criminal in France for it, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I'm yeah. thinking about it. I'm watching the movie. I'm like, that's not really a good way to keep things on the down low. No. Um, and then the other thing is that the guys that they do recruit make mistakes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and you could see, you know, how this thing, you know, could is just like, is is so tenuous that, that kind of how he he starts this little tension thing that he gets going and he doesn't really build it up to like this you know nail biting sort of thing but he does it enough um that you really get a sense of there are stakes going on and they're pretty high stakes you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so we go back then of course the uh, the Apollo character like an eager little you know puppy dog uh tries to get Anne to love him which she never will uh and you know he's another one of these guys who talks too much in this movie guys talk too much uh except for Bob of course uh and then you know naturally Anne talks too much uh and she has a scene where you're disappointed in her for multiple reasons one in that she opens her mouth and two in who she opens her mouth to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you get that double whammy and that's where you really kind of see that, you know, for as much as she's meant to be sort of this love object, uh, in various ways, just sort of innocent sort of thing. She's not, uh, and she's also, you know, as bad and maybe, uh, inadvertently so, but she's still as bad as anybody who could, uh, fuck up your uh, life as anybody else is. Yeah, um, I th- I, yeah. I think the 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 important scene for her is the fact that she goes to Bob because yes. she wants to be quote unquote a good girl. Yes. Yeah. And, but uh, at the same time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, doesn't quite. Work it's already out for done. Her. Yeah, doesn't quite work out for her. Yeah. No. Um. So going back to the fairy tale bit. Uh we're shown a fantasy of the heist right yes uh replete with uh, with narration um so you get the you actually do get to see uh the heist getting pulled off although that's kind of another thing where uh melville pulls the rug out from underneath you is that he's doing these things where he's he's giving you the setup and he's kind of giving you the payoff but then he's like, yeah, no, we're not actually going to do that. We're going to do it a little bit different. We're going to, you know, flip it around a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see. Uh, 
Bob and his little cop friend have a great chemistry. Um, he's another one that, again, you know, you get that they genuinely care about each other. Uh, but that won't stop either one of them from doing their jobs. It kind of reminded me of, um, and again, going back to the the whole Tarantino thing, uh, you know, the, the scene where in Reservoir Dogs where uh, Harvey Keitel is talking about uh, if somebody gets in your way, you know, one way or another, they're getting out of your way. If it's me or some other motherfucker, you know, I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to take him down. Uh, and that's sort of the, the sort of thing that we got going here. And even, uh, okay, Michael Mann, uh, the scene in Heat with yeah. uh, Pacino and uh, De Niro having coffee at the uh, the airport diner there. Yeah, don't ever. Talking about how, you know, don't ever this yourself. is my job. This yeah. is what I do. You are not going to get in my way. Yeah. Don't um, and and there's other, there's a very Melville line in Heat as well when he talks about, you know, De Niro's character talks about don't ever attach yourself to anything you're not willing to walk away from. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's that's always these guys' fatal flaw, right? Is they do they get attached to one thing that they can't walk yeah. away from? It's either a woman or a child, or or there's a situation, or there's some pride, or yeah, 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 or, yeah, yeah. or a, a son figure, mm-hmm. you know, some mm-hmm. type of figure. Like you know, they go their whole lives doing these jobs, and they never have any children. They attach themselves to a character like Paulo, for instance, in this film, who's almost mm-hmm. like a son to Bob Flamboer. And uh, yeah, so very they, much so. Yeah, it's it's that human quality that gets in the way of uh, being a mastermind criminal. That's the, I think it's the reason why you we watch films like this is that none of us can. Not, well, the majority of us are not criminals by nature, and we're fascinated by that. But we're, I think we're also fascinated with the fact that these guys also are human beings sometimes because mm-hmm. they do such awful things. So well, they do. Um- I don't know. I don't, uh, well, stealing is something totally different than murder, obviously. But yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's funny because we would always take you know it's either the thief or the assassin, right? Yes, yes. And and the, that's why that's why usually in these movies, when you have somebody like an assassin, he has rules. You know, no women, no kids, or you know, no whatever. Yeah. Um, he always has a rule because he has a certain he has a morality, even though he's immoral. Yeah. Or amoral, or yeah. wh- however you'd care to describe it. You don't open um, yourself up to that because when, right. That's when the humanity can leak through, and you you're doing an inhumane job. Right, right, and it's 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 one of those things that really fascinates us, uh, and I find it fascinating that it fascinates us as much as it does. Yeah. Um, I think you, you could probably write volumes on it, uh, and somebody may have. I don't know. Um, oh, I think so. it's a natural human dilemma. I think it's it's something we all have had some tinge of in our life. I, I, so I, I think back to when I was a child. I, I've never really done any criminal activity that I can think of. But when I was a kid, I did once, and the, you know, I'll bring this up as a good example because I learned from it. I did take a toy car from my best friend growing up. I just mm-hmm. put it in my pocket. I took it. I thought he's got enough cars. You know, in my head, I'm justifying it as a kid. As he's got enough cars. He doesn't need this one. I like this one. I'm going to take this one. And then, you know, later on, you come to find out, he finds out about it, and he's very upset, and obviously it makes me upset. And then you get that life lesson of, you know, you don't take things that aren't yours just because you can. Mm-hmm. But there's this, I think all human beings have this, and what I'm, what I'm basically trying to say is I think we all have this in us. It's a matter of do we learn from it or are we attracted to it? Mm-hmm. And, and some people are just attracted to it. There's, you know, something psychological there, obviously, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I completely agree with you on that one. Uh, so one of the things is that... 
the narrative here in this film is not 100% focused, and I think that that's what gives it its uh, complexity or some of its complexity. Um, it takes its time. It dangles multiple strings out there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it lets Melville kind of twist them into one story, and it does come together. Uh, it's not clean 100%, uh, though, and uh, in some ways it subverts what it's emulating, Um these you know gangster movies of uh, from America and that and what Melville, uh, it's it okay. I need to back up here. Okay, so it's not clean, right? It's uh, subverting stuff, and it's what Melville would be celebrated for only a year or two later and going forward. Um, is that uh, uh, how am I trying to say this? <sighs> what he's subverting is what he would be emulated for later on. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I thought I was going a little nuts there. I got a little bit of word salad going on. Well, there. I'm not going to say um, I'm, I'm not going to say you're not crazy, but well, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no. That's what I like about the film is that it's it's not it's not a complete it's not what we would come to think of as being a Melville movie, although it has the uh, the beginnings of it, um, and it it you know almost plays against what would become uh, his sort of uh, signature. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I love the movie so much. So, uh, eventually like the gangster films and the, the, the noirs, uh, in America, I, I think that this movie is ultimately about, um, it's about fate and it's about Bob's inability to escape it. And, and it's about his base nature. Um, and that's really kind of, uh, yeah. I mean, it's what we've been talking about this entire time here about this sort of, uh, push and pull, uh, that they have in this sort of lifestyle, the, the attraction to it, um, while wanting to maintain some uh, shred of humanity and dignity or uh, honor or whatever you'd care to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it really works marvelously here. Um, so, yeah, that's why I love this one. Uh, probably, uh, yeah, like I've said multiple times before, uh, my favorite Melville movie is this one. Uh, and that's largely the reason why, because it's not as clean, it's not as polished, it's not as, uh, I don't want to use the word, I don't want to use the word cookie cutter uh, or cliche Melville, but um, this is the least one that uh, you would expect that in, although it also hews the closest to those sort of uh, films that would come on later. Um, like the Le Samurais and Le Doulos and all of that sort of thing. And only a few years down the road. Yep. Um, that is all of my notes here. So yeah. kick it over to you for So I saw that this film popped up on the Criterion channel as well. Mm-hmm. All of Melville's uh, movies did. Yep. So they're there if you guys uh, don't have the Blu-ray. The, the Blu-ray release is nice, got to say. looks good. Mm-hmm. looks great, actually. Uh, it's funny, this is one of his cheaper movies, but this is one of his best-looking movies to me. Uh, he made some good-looking films, but this one, I really like the look of this one a bit, a lot. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's I think that's the neorealism yeah. that uh, that he would kind of get away from when he would become more studio-bound yeah, yeah, uh, later yeah. on. Yeah, I think that's it, too, because the, the outdoor stuff in this is fantastic. It really is. It looks really mm-hmm. great. Um, so kind of give everybody an idea, anybody who's not real aware of Melville or anything else, but just kind of give everybody an idea. Um, this is, uh, Jim Jarmusch's favorite movie. This is, uh, this is Tarantino. He calls it his favorite gangster movie. Uh, this is one of Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite movies. One of Mike Hodge's favorite movies. Uh, Good Lord. 
there's a lot of people love this movie. Uh, Neil Jordan loves this movie. John Woo loves this movie. And uh, it's just, you know, it's just, it's one of those movies. Now, I will say that I, I like this movie a lot. I don't know if I love it uh, mm-hmm. because it does. It feels a little bit like a pie with the crust kind of hanging over the sides a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah. It's really, well, like really, I said, that, that's what I, that's what kind of yeah. was, was my attraction. It's really, really tasty and really, really sweet, and it hits all the right buttons. But there's moments when it kind of meanders a little bit. There's like a little fat on the, you know, a little fat on the bone. Right, right, right. Uh, and I think he would lean it down for me. Uh, and again, it's just a personal thing. I think he would lean it down more to its basics as he mm-hmm. moved forward. And what I came to love is, you know, the Melville way, which for me, in all honesty, he hit his peak with, uh, even though I do think Le Cirque Rouge is great, I think that Samurai is, for me, his most entertaining film. I don't know if it's his best film, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, for me, it's certainly the one that I love the most because it's got that you know that stoic kind of quiet lead, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very much about this character wanting to be alone and stuff. But one thing we can say about Melville was there anybody in cinema history who loved trench coats more? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I don't. I think he, you know, fourteen films. I'm pretty sure there's a trench coat in every one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to go look, but I'm pretty sure. Multiple, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, he loves the trench coat. And, the, you know, they look great. They they, they work really good. Uh, <laughs> in, 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 uh, in the movies. And uh, I don't know. I, it, that's a jacket, you know, that's a jacket that, outside of Columbo, <laughs> uh, you just never really see used very often. Well, I, you know what? I've never seen one of those in real life. Uh, I used to have one like long, 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 long time ago, like yeah. way before, uh, college even. Yeah. I remember black trench coats. I remember some people rocking some black trench coats, but I've never seen the standard kind of rain trench coat, uh, detective Columbo, blah, blah, blah. So many characters have used these coats over the years. I don't, mm-hmm. I haven't seen one of those in live, live and in person. I've never seen one of those. Uh, I think I need to, I think I need to get one. There you go. I think I need to rock. Life them. goals. No, yeah, life goals. You got to have them. Um, <laughs> but I do, I do enjoy the narrative of this film a lot because there is a father son element to it, mm-hmm. and there is this, there is this kind of. I think we all we are all attracted to this, you know, one last job type movie, and the, and that this doesn't feel like that so much. Uh, that would kind of come into play a lot more, but you can see that moment in Bob's face when he realizes he might be able to, to make a big score. And like he tries to stay away from that stuff because he's already done some time and and all these things. But that woman, when that one character brings up this this, I think it's eight hundred thousand or something like that. Uh, eight hundred million, I think it was. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right because they do they, their money system was different, right? Because they throw yes. around thousands and it's like dollars. Anyway, he see you see Bob's face. It's one of the it's one of the most emotional responses Bob has to anything in the movie. Well, you could almost hear the switch go off. Yeah. And that's always kind of fun in criminal movies because, you know, they like to believe that they, it's the, uh, it's the, the very, you know, in a flawed movie, it's, but it's the most popular line, maybe in the Godfather trilogy in a lot of ways, which is, I try to get out and every time they keep pulling me back in, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because once you're in that lifestyle and you've made your life that life, you can't ever, you know, the, you remember uh, mob movies, people saying going legit and all these things like that. You can't ever really get legitimate because it, it will suck you back in. It's too. It's too much. It's too. Tan, it's too tantalizing. It's too much of the dangling carrot. You know, 
it's yeah. right there in 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 your, within your hands. And Bob's obviously pretty good at some of these things, but he he also gets this kind of euphoria, which I think is why you know I think it's pretty genius to make him a gambler or. In the French case, a flambler. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> Met up with flambler. Uh, the uh, uh, in the, in this case, you know, you, you get this euphoria that come uh, making him the gambler. He sees this potential for a score, and I think criminals, gambling, all these things. For me. I've won a few times gambling. I enjoy gambling a little bit. I've I've done it, you know, but it's not something I like pine to do, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. It's mm-hmm. not something like I think, you know what, I'm I'm gonna go gambling tonight. Like it sounds like a fun time. If I happen to go somewhere and there's some gambling, or if we end up at a, me and my wife end up at a casino or something like that, I'll do a little gambling. And I will fully admit there is a euphoria that comes over you from winning. Uh, there is this feeling. Especially if you if you pocket some change, like I remember one time I put fifty cents in a slot machine, boom, I hit it, I won fifty bucks, and that doesn't sound like a lot. I've won more than that, but I've had to put more money in. But this was a one time thing. I put fifty cents in, boom, I got fifty bucks, and that euphoria was unbelievable because it was just a fluke. And you can see where somebody that has a weaker constitution to that, you can see where they would fall victim to it, like it would become everything to them, right? Like uh, like opioids or like uh, pleasure or whatever. We all have our our proclivities, I'm sure. But uh, these things hit a certain sense of the brain, and uh, they either make well, it makes or break you feel it. special. Yeah, they either it makes or breaks you. It just depends on who you are and how you handle it. And it all comes down to character. Now, Bob's character, you can you sense that he's been through the worst of his proclivities, his uh, his vices, but. Again, like the Pacino character and like the Michael Corleone character in Godfather Part Three, he gets sucked back in because he has a big loss. He, you know, he needs. He still has a lifestyle. He has to have a upkeep for. Uh, he's got a hell of an apartment. I mean, mm-hmm. that thing's awesome. That view is amazing. Um, and he's got a, you know, he's got a lifestyle. I gotta admit that I'm kind of envious of. When I was younger, I loved the all night out lifestyle, sleep all day. Because uh, I'm not a daylight type person, I'm more of a nighttime kind of guy. Like you know, I, I don't know what it is about the night, but it kind of gets my juices flowing and stuff. I'm I, I'm not the kind of guy that gets up in the morning and then the sun starts shining. And I'm like, yeah, life is beautiful. <laughs> I'm not that guy. Like I don't need sunshine in my life. I like quiet. I like dark. I like no windows in a room. Uh, that's that's my personality. And uh, you know that uh, like it, uh, I have this conversation. I don't have this conversation, but I know it drives my mother-in-law crazy. Like we'll go on vacation somewhere, somewhere sunny, and she they're with us, and they're like, you know, the minute they wake up, they're outside. Yeah, and they don't go back to the hotel unless it's to eat lunch or to ever go back because you know you're you're in the, you got to be outside. It's where the sun is and everything else. And it's like, yeah, no, I don't. I really don't. <laughs> I, I get just as much energy. I feed off just as much energy from not being outdoors. It's just it, it depends on who you are and what you do. So anyway, uh, I, I like this kind of uh, what's uh, I'm trying to think of the lifestyle, kind of like a raccoon lifestyle, almost like you know, like a nocturnal animal. I, I you know, of course, obviously, I have children now, so I can't live that lifestyle. But I can imagine when my kids grow up that I'll, and if I ever retire, I'll probably be an all night guy, sleep all day. Because <laughs> again, I'm just not a, I'm just not attracted to sunshine and prettiness. I'm attracted to mm-hmm. the night, like Michael Mann. You love the nightlife. You love the boogie. That's right. That's right. I don't know about the boogie in part, but I do love the nightlife. You boogie. 
<laughs> I picked a boogie before we did the <laughs> 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 got, it, got it right out of there. It was bothering you. You wipe it on the bottom yeah. of your chair. Yeah. One of them elevator ones. One of them ones where every time you breathe, it goes up and down in your nose. Oh, <laughs> that's the worst. <laughs> yes. Gives you that slight tickle, and you're like, you son of a yeah. bitch. You're like, you motherfucker. Yeah, those are the ones that irritate you so much that you're willing to throw all your vanity out the window and just pick your nose in public. <laughs> just fucking dig yeah. it. Yeah. It's like you're talking to somebody and it's bothering you so much. You're like, you know what, man? Hold on. <laughs> I'm going to blow my nose I, I, into my I hand. Do this. <laughs> yeah. Or you just lean over and just do the snot rocket thing. Just blow it right out. Yeah. There we go. Good. Yeah, but that usually comes back to bite you because then it gets all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Or it goes someplace you don't want it well, to. Or... I'm a bearded man, and all of us bearded oh, men out boy. there know, be careful what you do when you do that. <laughs> sooner or later, somebody will come up to you, and it tends to be, unfortunately for most of us bearded men, it tends to be an attractive young female who yeah. comes up to you and like, hey, you got snot in your beard. Like, yeah. oh, that's awesome. Never one of your friends is like, hey, buddy, you might want to take care of that. No, no, no. Your friends aren't going to do that. They're going to be like, nah, they're going to laugh at you. Like, oh, look at that one, man. It's got a little bit of blood in it. That's even better. <laughs> that's got a vein. <laughs> anyway, um, but, I, but but I do, I, I like all, the, I love the Melvilliness of this film. Uh, and I love, you know, where he would go. But I totally agree with you. He He sets the template here. For mm-hmm. a world of movies that goes forward all the way to now. Yes. Uh, and it's this calm, cool, collected criminal. How you like that? How them C's in there. Calm, nice. cool, collected criminal. Nice and, alliteration there, Stan. Yeah. And it's it's this thing that we're attracted to, uh, which I think like Elmore Leonard was attracted to. I think mm-hmm. a lot of great crime novelists and, and crime filmmakers and stuff were all attracted to this coolness of these characters who do these awful things that we wouldn't do in real life. We wouldn't do ourselves, but we kind of live vicariously through these characters. And, uh, this is one of the first, I would say, if not the first, I, 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 I don't know if I could say that, but I would definitely say it's one of the first, uh, where you catch yourself brooding for the criminal. And it, this would become a thing where, you know, Scorsese does this very well, right? Scorsese makes these criminals attractive. Right. Uh, Coppola did it. Uh, all these filmmakers did it. Well, it's one of those. It's one of those things that we've always talked about. Is that it's not so much that the guy has to be good or bad. It's that he has to be compelling. That's right. Uh, and I think that that's you know what you get here is that struggle in Bob between you know he his desire to actually be a criminal and his desire to just kind of be you know it's what do you want to be? You want to be a loser because he keeps talking about how he's so lucky, so lucky, so lucky, but he is always losing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he could either be that or he can go for, you know, he can grab for the brass ring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that's that sort of thing that, you know, that's the, that dichotomy, that, that tension between those two, uh, those two angles. Yeah. Well, because there's a certain heroic quality, even though you're doing a criminal thing, there's a certain heroic quality uh, to the idea of grabbing the brass ring. To the idea well, that's, of, yeah, that's yeah, just it. Yeah. To pulling off the big heist to mm-hmm. there's there's a challenge to, to saving it. the rec center as yeah, it were yeah yeah there's a challenge to it there's a uh some type of uh, uh braggadocio is that the kind of word i'm looking for uh mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. type of importance to your meaning uh if you can pull off the big heist and a lot of these movies uh kind of center around a heist or some type of thing they did i mean goodfellas is a is it's a great mob movie but it's also a heist movie Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think a lot of people forget, and then you know the, the 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 French were making really great heist movies in the fifties. I mean, Rafifi was right before this, uh, which I think Melville kind of saw as a personal challenge, 
and he would kind of go on in his career to make uh, Le Circle Rouge. Some will say is is the greatest heist ever filmed. I don't know if that's the case. I I love a lot of heist movies, and it's weird. Some heist movies or escape movies, because I kind of rope them in together. Right. There's some that uh, they're not real good movies, but I enjoy the heist or the escape even more than some of these classics. Like, right, right, right. Like well, I, yeah, I really there's, love there's the, stuff like- the escape from. Uh, uh, I love the Clint Eastwood escape from Alcatraz film. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and even well, though it's that, not there's, that great there's made, top but it, cappy, there's Gambit. Yeah, there's that. There's uh, Stir Crazy with uh, mm-hmm. Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. I love that escape scene. I love that. I love the way they. I think it's genius, the way it's done. I don't think it's a genius movie, but I think that escape scene's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just all these movies over time. Then one of the things that cinema does really, really, really well is creates this tension around a job that you, as an audience member, are a part of. And, you know, you get to live through that. And it's just one of the things that cinema does really, really well, I think. And uh, this is a great example of it. Again, I don't think this is Melville's masterpiece, but it's certainly one of his best films. And that's saying a lot. I mean, the guy only made 14 movies. So right. uh, I'd say it's top five of his easily. I don't know where it is for me. It might be. It's certainly in the top five for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But I like a lot of his stuff, man. Army of Shadows. Le Circle Rouge, Le Samurai. Uh, I like Unflick quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just some, you know, I mean, he's he's one of the filmmakers who's got a, like Stanley Kubrick's got a small selection of films, right? And it's hard to argue with most of his films not being uh, good to, or really good to great, not not just good. I haven't seen all of his stuff, but uh, I know the film he made before this, uh, or made the one right after this. I can't remember the one about the letter. Um, oh, uh, yeah. When you read this letter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Called? I know he disowned that one. Like he felt that was a kind of like Kubrick's uh, fear and desire. He kind of felt like that was a mistake. Um, not that you know he he made the movie and stuff, but he kind of just would never really talk about that one. Like he felt that one, everything he went for in that one, he kind of failed. He thought, but uh, he never talked bad about any of the other things he did. And uh, yeah, he's he's a. Uh, Certainly one of the most influential filmmakers of all time. Um, nobody can deny that. I mean, he's he's up there with, man, he's up there with some of the greatest filmmakers of all time when it comes to influence. Uh, I would agree with that. And if, that's why I find it kind of odd that uh, he's so rarely actually spoken about. Yeah. Uh, it's just really, really weird to me. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. For yeah. how much influence he has yeah. on everything now. Yeah, I mean he's he's all over everything. If you go back and watch mm-hmm. these movies that he did, I mean uh, the modern crime film. Uh, again, I think even writers like Elmore Leonard, one of the great crime novelists of all time, I think owes a lot to Melville. He would mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. kind of take it into you know deep South America or you know midway. He would just kind of move it around or Detroit or all these places and stuff. But they're really just Melville films, and uh, there's this criminal element to them, and and it, this works and. Tarantino right. owes, you know, the the flamboyant criminal, the likable, charismatic criminal that Tarantino has made a career out of is, and you know, it comes from here. Yeah, his, yeah. his, his characters and, and, are much more loud, but they, they and, come from here. And I think it's important to you know to point out that you know obviously Melville was taking from a lot of influences himself. Mm-hmm. Yes, but uh, the thing was that he was able to distill it cinematically. Yeah. And I think that's what gives him uh, so much cachet. Yeah, well, his uh, personality, the, 
His personality was very Bob Liflembor, from what I understand. I mean, he was. Yeah, a, he was kind of a rake. Yeah, kind of a rake, kind of an all nighter kind of guy. Slept all day. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, he was also a lot of his past was also kind of um, uh, uh, under suspicion. Yeah. Uh, for some of the things yeah. that he said. Yeah, he loved big American cars, which Bob Liflembor drives a big American car in this. Yes, he does. Which looks out of place in Europe. As, <laughs> it as, really, really does. As it always does, because our cars are so much larger, and well, especially back then. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, the, a lot of Melville comes through in in Bob, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or as they say in the movie, Bub, Bub, hey Bub, <laughs> Bub, hey Bub, Baguette. everybody Bub. <laughs> yeah, that's important. What's going on, Bub, 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 Bub? Everybody, <laughs> sound like idiots. The. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the old, the old joke? What happens when you know? What do you call a guy with no arms and no legs in the water? Bub. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Terrible. I'll say again. I love tasteless jokes. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so uh, yeah. So I mean, I really enjoyed this though. Kind of going back visit. I'd only seen this once. Uh, I had not seen this one as frequently. But this is one of those ones where going back and seeing it, I could see myself rewatching it, and I could see myself loving it more on rewatches. I think the only reason why I love Le Samurai so much is because again, it was one of the ones, the one of the few ones I had access to uh, growing up. And uh, between that and Unflick, those were the two that I really loved of his uh, because those were the ones I had access to. It's really that simple, and I saw them multiple times. Whereas. Uh, Le Flambeur, I have I had not had access to it as often. It took me a long time to ever even see it. I thought it was a movie about a cook, <laughs> um, but anyway, it's it's very influential, and you know, there's still a handful of his films. Believe it or not, I haven't seen. Like I've not seen Two Men in Manhattan. I've not seen. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of the early ones. I haven't seen the the Robert Morin Priest yeah. one, yeah. Uh, and I think there was a boxing one. There might be. I've not seen. Uh, I can tell you between Bob Flambeur and Le Samurai, I have not seen anything. I have not seen Two Men in Manhattan, the Priest film, Les Duelles, Les Duelles, 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 Magnet of Doom, which has a great title. I think that's the. I think that's the boxing one, Magnet of Doom. Les Deuxième Soufflé. Les Deuxième Soufflé. Yeah, look at you. And I haven't seen that one, so there we go. That's a real good one too. That's a really, really good one. So I maybe need to, you know take advantage of that criterion channel uh subscription and get in there absolutely see if anybody else is bub i think you can skip uh the uh two men in manhattan mm, okay um because it's really not quite there okay i mean it's still worth seeing for you know sure, sure. certain reasons well you know you know me i'm gonna watch it i don't life. think you'll get as much out of it as you will out of most of his other stuff yeah yeah um but yeah man i'll kick it back over to you for make or breaks mvts all righty. Uh, make or break for me is when the Roger character uh, is doing his little safe cracking setup with the speaker uh, in uh, Howard Vernon's house. Oh, so good. Um, it's <laughs> incredibly tense, even yeah. with no, there's no immediate consequences. There's no consequences it's, it's, whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. But it's, it's, it's just incredibly tense. Yeah. Uh, and it shows, I think, the spark of Melville's genius and what he would, uh, you know, kind of take to a, a high polish uh, yep. a little later on um so yeah that's make or break for me and mbt i mean it's melville it's his show yeah. um yeah 
A hundred percent. You know, he's the he's in control here, uh, and he does everything that uh, that he he can wanted to or would do. Uh, he does uh, he does marvelously here. Um, maybe a little rough around the edges, but still. Um, and score for me is eight point five out of ten. Uh, like I've said before, this is my favorite uh, Melville. Nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just I love it. Love the crap out of it. Love it more on each uh, on each viewing. Nice, nice. It's good. Well, we're pretty much uh, almost in, in simpatico uh, on this whole thing here. Uh, my favorite <laughs> scene, too, is that safe-cracking scene. We didn't talk about it. No, But there's no. this kind of great scene where they're kind of using all this newfangled technology. And uh, it's really great. And they're basically just competing against the clock. Yes. But there's really these kind of great moments with these actors' faces kind of watching. Paulo's kind of over his shoulder, which I would have swatted him away. <laughs> uh, get out of my way, you bastard! You hanging over me while I'm trying to concentrate. But Howard Vernon's really great there. You really get the. That's when. That's when I had that moment where I was like, "Oh, I know that guy's face from somewhere. <laughs> oh, I know where I know it from. He's the awful Doctor Orloff." Mm-hmm. Uh, that was when I had that moment uh, because they really give you a good close up. Again, he's wearing shades through most of the movie, which kind of has his very distinguishable uh, kind of uh, eye sockets and eye frames. He had a very distinguishable look on his face. Um. But yeah, I really love that scene. I love how Bob's timing it and stuff like that. And I love how they, you know, at the end, there's like this moment of pomp, you know, this kind of bragging moment of I'll have it under two minutes by tomorrow. And I love that, you know, the little simple moment like that. But all the acting's good. But that's really, that's really my favorite scene. My MVT also is Melville. Uh, it, it, Deshane's really good in the movie, we should say. Roger Deshane. Uh, I don't know enough about him to not, to give him, you know, the full credit for the MVT. He's really. But the reason why I give it to Melville is because, from my understanding with this movie and stuff, is he's basically an avatar for Melville here. This is how Melville, it's kind of like, you know, fantasy. It's kind of like how he saw himself in some ways mm-hmm. as this kind of uh, likable rogue. Um, and he's very similar to, like, a lot of the Melville things. So, uh, yeah, Melville was very uh, very much a womanizer, which is weird because he's not exactly the, uh, it's kind of like the uh, that one director, James Tobeck. <laughs> who has this history of being a womanizer and everything else and then you see him and you're like oh <laughs> yeah you're like really <laughs> yeah yeah so Melville not the most attractive man on first look but evidently did not see that one coming uh, yeah evidently quite debonair uh but also quite shitty to women uh, mm. uh my score for the film is an eight so i'm right there with you obviously we're either we're almost always a half a point off on each other either to the good or to the bad it seems uh either way you want to look at it but i i i tend to like i really like that run at the end from 67 to 72 that he did i really felt like he was hitting his stride but mm-hmm. it is interesting to go back to 59 56 i mean and and see the gestation of uh jean-pierre melville and the characters that he would kind of create and and uh I, th- this film is it's got all the blueprint of all the things that i would come to love about his movies Mm-hmm. So it's really good, and uh, Kino Lorber still continues to be one of the best labels out there, and uh, they did a good job. <laughs> well, with this if I'm well. if I'm if I'm thinking correctly, the the couple of Melville movies that they just put out um, are both ported over from previous Criterion editions. I might be wrong about that. There might, might be some no, additional. Right. I, mean, I think there might be there might be some additional. Um, uh, bonuses, uh, bonus features on there, but I'm, I'm almost 100 percent sure that the the yeah. ports of the uh, the previous Criterion is just on blue now. Yep. So anyway, good stuff. Uh, we're going to take a short break. 
we'll come back and discuss uh, Murder Rock. <laughs> well, talk about a fucking 180. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll be back right after this. song <laughs> one thing you could say about euro disco is that it really does not sound like any other uh, no, kind of disco no, it's, it's almost like a exaggerated form of disco <laughs> well it's like everything else in italy yes it's like this is what americans like we need to take it up a notch mm. and it's you know, it's like what the hell but yeah no i I am quite the fan of that song, uh, written by Keith Emerson of uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer or Paul. Uh, yes, Powell. it is. Emerson Lake and Powell. Emerson Lake and Palmer. Palmer. Yeah. Hold on one second. Yeah, you're getting a call. Might be from Lucio Fulci's agent. What are you doing? What are you playing? All right. So, look at that. Um, let's get into a plot synopsis here while Todd is busy taking calls. Uh. <laughs> Uh, Murder Rock, colon, Dancing Death, 1984, directed by one Lucio Fulci. Um, the owner of a prestigious New York ballet school team teams up with a male model to solve a series of bizarre murders of a few of the students. <laughs> so, yeah, that's <laughs> male model. Is that, I guess that's Ray Lovelock. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well. Who is really, uh, yeah, he's, a little haggard for a male model. Maybe unless you're selling cigarettes or something, you know. I guess he's selling alcohol at some point in one of the one of the billboards. He ads. is, yeah, okay, which makes sense because he's a raging alcoholic in this. <laughs> I should say Ray Lovelock's drunk acting, not good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not good, not good. So this one has some uh, kind of fun faces in it. It's got Olga Carlados who uh, did uh, quite a bit of. Uh, Italian films. I will always remember her as Prince's mom in Purple Rain. Um, but uh, because somehow she ended up in Prince's Purple Rain, it's one of those weird things where you go back and look at her film history and you're like, how the hell did she end up in Purple Rain? <laughs> uh, but she's a very striking looking woman. Yes. Uh, great eyes. And uh, you can see why Fulci really liked her. And I think she was actually, was, it, was she the one that got her eye pierced in Zombie? Yes, she is. Yes, yes. So she's the one, the infamous. Because yeah, she has those great eyes, and you never forget them. And then, of course, that scene is unforgettable. Mm-hmm. Unforgettable. Um, Ray Lovelock, <laughs> little Claudio Casanelli in here, who we should say, unfortunately, you know, when he was doing Hands of Steel, died in a helicopter crash uh, at 46, which is how old I am now. So that's always, ugh, I hate to read stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, that's that's the truth. And that's the way it was. Cosimo Sinari is in this film as Lieutenant Borges, and... Ultimately, comes out of this film for me as my favorite performance in the movie. <laughs> He's amazing in this. Oh yeah, with the almonds and the and the attitude and the smacking. 
Yep. And the trench coat, we should say. Both of our films feature trench coats this week. I don't know what's up with you and trench coats, but it uh, it came through in your selections. I'm sure it had it's nothing thing, to do with it's it. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, of course, Jaretta Jaretta, who's probably friends with a lot of us on Facebook. And uh, <laughs> and then uh, Christian Borromeo, uh, who uh, was in quite a few films uh, that are memorable. Uh, not exactly a memorable actor as, as much as for his acting, but definitely for his face. Uh, he was in Tenebrae, Tenebrae and Tenebrae. Tenebrae and, uh, uh, what's it, House at the Edge of the Park, I think? It's one of those two. So he was in that. And uh, you you know him. Uh, you've seen him before. And infamously, he might be in one of the worst yellows ever made, which I think is called uh, uh, 28 Minutes or 98 Minutes or something like that. I'm going to have to look it up. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with that one. It's a 1991 one, so super late cycle. Oh, yeah. Uh, Say no more. Yeah, 28 minuto, uh, uh, which would be 28 minutes. So, anyway, it might be worth a look if you're into terrible movies. Uh, so, uh, which some of us are. <laughs> True. All right. So, I'm going to jump into this one because I got to be forthright with everybody. I told Will and I told Todd this uh, a long time ago, back in the video store days. I rented this because it's got a great cover. Uh, I thought it might be a little Suspiria esque. I thought it might be kind of fun. Uh, it seemed kind of sexy, which, by the way, in rewatching it, this movie is very sexy in a lot of ways. At least it got my goose going. I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> might have been the, the sweatiness and all the dancing, but uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It's got a, ooh, yeah, there's a couple moments. <laughs> uh, totally in love with that uh, young lady at the beginning of the film, the blonde. Mm-hmm. And she's not my type, but man, something about her. Uh, might just be the nudity. Uh, sound like a pig, but I I didn't uh, I didn't really like this movie at all when I saw it when I was younger. I thought it was abysmal. Really? Yeah, I did, and uh, I think it was just a matter of catching it. One of those things of catching it at the wrong time. I uh, think that would have to be a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah, 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 because going back and looking at it now, it's still not a great movie. No, 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 no. But it looks great. I think it's sh- it's shot well and it and it it plays pretty good. It's not it's not there's not a lot of fat on it. It 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 moves along at a pretty good pace. It does get boring in spots and a little silly like Giallo does. does. But for the most part, pound for pound, this is a pretty solid mid-80s Giallo film. And I say that with a straight face. I mean, and I'll say that again, I'll say Lucio Fulci was a director. I think I was always looking for the 70s Fulci when I would watch the 80s Fulci. Because I yeah. remember not, I, I like New York Ripper, but I remember not loving it when I first saw it. Uh, and I like it more now. Uh, right, right. And this is the same thing with this one. I've I've come to appreciate this now in a different way. And I think it's, it's interesting when films do that to you. Um, because if you'd have told me, you know, when we started the show, there's probably even sound bites of me making fun of this movie uh, <laughs> over the history of the show. And uh, I'll eat my crow on this one, man. I, I really enjoyed watching Murder Rock. I really did. I had a lot of fun. Utsindi Apaso de Danza. Ula. We open with some break dancing. Uh, and, you know, Will's not here to talk about this, but, you know, Will's the dancer between the three of us, I'd say. He is. He's, he's, the, the, he's the rug cutter. Yeah, he's the rug cutter. Or, in this case, the linoleum cutter. Yeah, I need to ask him, uh, though, since he has some dancing experience, was the crab walk ever cool? No. Because uh, it looks it looks ridiculous. Even It's break- good only for playing crab soccer. 
it's terrible. It looks terrible then. It looks terrible now. Uh huh. What it looks like? It looks like a circus, uh, a circus trick. <laughs> it, <laughs> it does. You know, not, most, uh, most break dancing looks pretty silly now, but it, at least it's somewhat dancing. The crab mm-hmm. walk. I never know why he even made itself in there. So because they could. It's yeah. one of those kind of things. Yeah. So. It's, yeah, but the movie the movie starts off it's it's New York City in all, in all its glory, right? It's, yes. Uh, yes. You get you get you get graffiti, you get the skyline, you get some break dancing. Actually, a lot of break dancing. Yeah, yeah you get a lot of and the an, twin towers and an inspirational in Euro disco uh, theme song. Yep, yep. You get a lot of the twin towers in this, which is always a bit striking to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Fulci's New York period, uh, so he would mm-hmm. come over and he would shoot. I don't know, three or four days in New York. Yeah. Grab as much exterior stuff as he could, and then obviously shoot on a studio, probably in in Italy somewhere, and uh, mix the two together. Uh, and he does he does it quite well. He did it quite well. Um, although I would I, I would bet if you go back and look at all of his New York films, I would bet there's repeated shots uh, where he may have used them over and over again because they look very similar. Uh, like I think of some of the shots in this look like New York Ripper a little bit. And yeah, maybe well, like yeah, he probably he he. I don't know that necessarily that he used the same shots, but he he may have used uh, footage from the same day shooting. Yeah. I could see that absolutely. Possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I would I wouldn't go on record saying that either. You're right. I mean, I don't know if he used the same shots, but he certainly probably grabbed as much footage as he possibly could without. Oh actors. yeah, just roll, 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 yeah. roll. We'll straighten it out back home. Um, so it opens with that breakdancing, and then it moves into this uh, what you just heard in that kind of synth pop song I just played. This kind of dance routine from the dude, uh, it it fucking bounces from the credits into the dance routine. Goes right into it, yeah. And you get five, six, seven, eight, five. So you get that kind of stuff. <laughs> and you know, it, it. But that scene, that dance sequence, is very. It pretty much sets up the kind of sleaziness of the movie. Exactly. Because it's very sexual. It's a very sexual dance sequence. Uh, the girls are very sweaty. Yep. Uh, they're pulsating, for lack of a better yep. word. It yep. reminds you of those uh, old aerobics videos I used to. I've talked about in the history of the show before, <laughs> where you know two or three women are just doing aerobics to sultry music, and you're watching it, and you're like, I don't know why I like watching this, but I do. <laughs> I'm not doing any aerobics right now, but I'm 14, and I'm going to watch it. But uh, and yet I'm sweating. <laughs> yes. Uh, but it, you know, well, it, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really really simple setup for a really really simple film. I mean, this is no uh, stage fright. Right. No, I mean, no. in fact, I, I think it may be better than stage fright, well, quite frankly. Here's the thing. The killer in stage fright is much more interesting because it's just so off well, the just wall. Just visually. Yeah. Yeah. But this film, and I hate to say this, but I agree with you, man. This film is better than stage fright. I think it is, you know, and, and then furthermore, I, I can't say necessarily based off of this, this opening sequence, I can't say that Fulci would have been a, a a great music video director, but you know he certainly has all the needed elements. I, I would have watched him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, so even like I said, even for me, this film gets a bit of a bum rap, and I think part of that has to be the title. Uh, the title is kind of ridiculous. I mean, it sells the movie for what it is, yeah. but it just sounds like an Italian film trying to be an American film. Yes, and that's part of the problem, I think, because I mean, obviously, this is aping on. And kind of riding the heels of uh, fame and yep. uh, Suspiria, even which is further back, but maybe more so fame and Flashdance than Suspiria. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing kind of Suspiria like in this is it just so happens there's a lot of females in the dance class, but it's not this is a school for girls. It, there's boys there too, and uh, I, I I I like the element of this being this this murderer that hanging that's hanging around this this uh, dance studio. 
and uh, getting stuff done. But of course, it automatically goes into the the famous uh, giallo red herring. Uh, there's quite a few moments where you get the red herring kind of camera work. Oh yeah, could it be this character? Why does why does this guy have a limp? Does the killer have yeah. a limp? Why, is, why this? is this guy looking at this guy that way? Yeah. Why is he narrowing his eyes? Yeah, why did he zoom in on that face? Yeah, and all kinds of Just moments cause. like that. I mean, uh, this Claudio Casanelli's whole performance is a red herring performance. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, every time the camera's on him, he's like, "Oh, I don't know what I've done." <laughs> That's what it feels like, anyway. You know, and you're you're sitting there thinking, if you've never seen this before, you'd be like. Uh, it's Claudio Casanelli. He's doing all the killing, no doubt about it. But you know, he's just uh, again, it's it's quintessential Italian red herring acting, and uh, you'll either love it or hate it. I mean, it could be uh, strange. The dancing is, is was very popular at the time. The the dancing, the the dancing, the dancing kind of borders on kind of boot camp type uh, behavior. Like they're really hard on the dancers and stuff. And this kind of still yeah. kind of carries over. I haven't seen the new Suspiria, but there's very much a discipline to uh dance classes and ballet and, and i'll these put it things. this way you will get in the new suspiria more um more interpretive dancing than you got in the original suspiria yeah 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 i could see i'll that. leave it at that yeah so this one uh it's very much it's basically the same dance sequence over and over again because there's only the one song <laughs> and uh like in true italian form they milk it for all it's worth mm-hmm. and uh then there's there's a lot of great like little stings and stuff because this one from what I understand, a big chunk of the budget went to Emerson on this. Really? Uh, because this is not the kind of film you would think a musician of his kind of stature would score. Well, I think he did a few, didn't he? He did. He did. He did a few of these type of things. And I'll say this about that. You know, his score really sticks out as incongruous at multiple times in this thing. It's very odd. Like, it just gets thrown <laughs> the fuck in. It's very weird sometimes, yes. <laughs> It feels like to me at this point, you know, at this point, progressive rock was dead. Um, Keith Emerson was a very big part of that world. Yes. And, uh, and it, it, you know, he's looking for another, for all intents and purposes, he's looking for another gig. Uh, he made Inferno. He didn't, well, he didn't make it. He shot, he did the soundtrack for Inferno, Nighthawks, uh, Murder Rock, Best Revenge, and The Church. Uh, he also did the music for uh, Godzilla Final Wars. That's that's crazy. I didn't yeah, know that. That's yeah. Kisu Emerson. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice touch there, Keith. Unfortunately, he uh, killed himself. Uh, uh, committed suicide. Uh, what was it? Just a few years back, two or three years ago. So it's kind of a shame. But there was some fun. You know, there's some fun moments in here. But I totally agree with you. Like the music doesn't always fit, and really kind of tries to show up the movie sometimes like it's it's kind of i don't know it's kind of hamming it up is that the best way i can put it the music sometimes hams up the movie it it does it just it's because it doesn't belong it's not scene appropriate so it just turns it into it just cranks it up i find the church the uh, michele suave film i find that the same way the music kind (laughs) of it's trying to overachieve something that's also done by emerson so Interesting. I, you know, I'd have to go back and look at Inferno. It's been a long time since I've seen that. I'd have to go back and look at that to see if the music's intrusive or not. Uh, from what I remember, it actually fits a little bit more in with that because Inferno is a little more dreamlike. Yeah. Actually, a lot more dreamlike. Yeah. So it's a, you're a little more forgiving, I think, of uh, of how it works in there. Yeah. 
So we go, but I'll go back to what I was talking about. It's kind of boot campish type behavior. Uh, never has counting to eight seems so such a nasty thing to do. <laughs> How about oh, <laughs> uh, Carlotto's gives the most uninspirational fame-esque speech to her class yeah. on why they can't stop dancing after there's yeah. uh, that first murder. You suck. She, no, she's, yeah. she's like, there is no human. There's no time for crying in here. It's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, where's Arlie Ermey when you need him? Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it is it is a very sexual movie in a lot of ways. And I think that's important because I think the Gialli is a sexual genre. It is about the mm. perversion and about the, the kind of how close sex and violence are together. It's very important mm-hmm. that those two things are always together in a jolly. I think in, in successful jollies anyway. Um, I think that's what you're, you're looking for in that. Um, so the detective shows up. There's a lot of, I think Fulci does a good job with the, the blinding light thing as a mood piece. I think he does a fantastic job uh, with that, uh, that sort of strobing effect that he keeps using. The, you know, the film in general, I think, looks outstanding. It, yeah. I think it's got style to burn. And yeah, yeah I think that Fulci really, really makes uh, extraordinary use of uh, extremes of uh, light and dark. I think he does it really, really well. I mean, I think you see a lot of uh, skill from yeah. the guy in this movie for as goofy as everything is. Um, mm-hmm. There's, uh, you could, I, I honestly think there is a lot of thoughtfulness behind the camera on this one. Yeah. What's interesting is Fulci had always kind of compared to Jess Franco, which we talked about just a little while ago, mm-hmm. in that Fulci was always great with images. Like he's, he could always come up with a good image. Mm-hmm. He had an eye. But I always used to kind of rope him in with Franco and that his storytelling wasn't always that great. But as, as again, as time has gone on, I've come to realize his storytelling wasn't bad. Uh, maybe the stories he told sometimes were not great, but he did a pretty good job of keeping the narrative on pace and keeping it moving, even with his images. And, yes. there's, and there's some great images in this. There's a, again, we talked about that. There's the blinding light and then there's the, the, um, intermittent uh darkening like in the opening well there's yeah there's that that uh, that really brilliant uh thing that they throw in there the electronic building lockdown thing yes uh and, you know it's 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 great and number one it looks it looks great with the lights going on and off and two uh it's brilliant because it gives us a little plot device in case we need it to keep the victims from escaping the yes. killer yeah you'll remember it right well so when it comes yeah. back around you're like oh He's yeah, got, yeah, yeah, yeah. And be it just nearby. it just looks fantastic. And you yeah. know, I'll I'll go further. I will say that there is uh, very little doubt in my mind that Panos Cosmatos uh, is a huge fan of this movie. Oh, very little doubt. <laughs> uh, I would I would almost guarantee just from those just from that uh, that sequence. Well, that I, first I, sequence. I mean, I don't know if we talked about this when we did Mandy or not, but Mandy to me feels like Panos Cosmatos kind of love letter in a lot of ways to Fulci and Italian cinema. I don't remember if I talked about that when we reviewed it. Uh, I don't remember, but I could see that being the case. Yeah, but you do get a very strong vibe of Italian cinema from Mandy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And and honestly, from Beyond the Black, uh, was it Beyond the Black Rainbow? Is that the Beyond one? the Black Rainbow? Yeah. yeah, from that film as well. You get you get the sense that you know, obviously, he grew up watching these Italian uh, films, and you you, yeah. you sense that because there's those strong reds and all that look that the yep. Italians uh, had really kind of coined. Yep, um, yep. So once our detective shows up, uh, Lieutenant Borges, uh, Cosimo Cineri, like I said, or Cineri, how you say his name, uh, he's a lot of fun. Him and Giuseppe Manahulio, Manahulo, uh, as Professor Davis, I think is his uh, kind of uh, 
buddy cop type thing. They're kind of fun together. Yeah. Uh, I wish there was more of that. And I, from what I understand, uh, Fulci kind of wanted to make a trilogy out of this uh, murder rock thing. Like he enjoyed making this movie, and he kind of wanted to do three films set in this dance studio with the uh, Jolly. Well, that would have been interesting. And yeah, and keep Cosimo in there and everything. So. Unfortunately, he couldn't do it. He, he was suffering from a lot of uh, health ailments at the time. Mm. He's diabetic, well, and he had a really hard time uh, controlling his diabetes. The the Chinieri character, you know, somehow it's funny because all of his probing just kind of adds a layer of illogic to the plot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when his job is to do the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love his eyes are so intimidating. Like, he never, <laughs> he never looks like he's going to smile ever. Nah. No. He's like he's looking at you, he's like, You're guilty. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> got the most judging face. Uh he has also the best line in the movie. I mean, hands down. He's not a psycho, he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. I mean, that's just that's a great line no matter I don't care what movie genre you're in. That's great. He's like, Well, you can the doctor the professor character's like, Well, you can't you know, he's a psycho. He's not a psycho, he's an asshole. <laughs> well, I, I love that the prevailing theory is that you know there's some paranoiac who hates dancers and wants to do them all in. Yeah, yeah. yeah that makes that's that makes the most sense. Well, I mean that's a total yeah that's a total Italian thing, right? It's oh like, my god, yeah. I'm surprised that I don't recall if they actually brought up the words sex maniac, but they usually do in this yeah, sort of uh, yeah, yeah. film. I don't think they did in this one though. Well, the film is they may have. Yeah, but I mean the film is though. I mean the murders are very um, uh, sexual, right? Uh, they're oh, yeah. done with this uh, t- sort of like pin knife of some sort this sort of uh, uh hat pin i believe yeah hat pin there you go and um they're very intrusive and uh i guess for lack of a better word they're kind of vulgar well yeah um well a, a couple of things i think that yeah you get the close-up of the weapon the gloved hand the, the pov shots the gratuitous nudity the absurdity of the method and the way that it lingers on it it's pure faulty it's pure giallo yeah um and it's you know that's that fetishized sort of everything uh, that you get in these movies, and of course, then to give it even more faulty uh, to put on top of it all, you get that heart rupture sound effect. Yes, that's like somebody took an entire pack of celery and just crunched it. <laughs> yes, um, which is just amazing. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I like that touch, though. I gotta admit, I mean, I, oh my god, yeah, I love that heartbeat, and I love how the heartbeat stops. Like it's yeah, it's a nice, simple touch, and it works. Yeah, it, I, it absolutely works. I have 100%. a hard time, and, that, oh, and I, the strobe lights really add to that. Yeah, I still have a hard time, even with chloroform. I have a hard time believing that a character wouldn't react to getting that long of a hat pin put into their chest to stop their heart. <laughs> now you know I'm no scientist, but I'm just saying you know that chloroform is really strong stuff because the 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 murders in this are slow. Oh, like White Snake, man, they're slow and easy. <laughs> <laughs> Make love to me slow and easy. That's right. Oh fuck! <laughs> You'll be listening to that today. You'll be jamming it. I did not see fucking White Snake coming up in this. That's right, man. <laughs> That's right. A little David Coverdale for you. Too bad uh, Will isn't here. He loves the Coverdale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they are. I mean, they're gratuitous to uh, to a fault. I mean, they're they're done that way on purpose. And I yes, I think that's that's part of the fun of the movie, right? Um, you want that in your jelly. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Torso so much is it's it kind of lingers. It's sleazy. It's uh, 
it's nasty. It's 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 what I want in my giallos. I don't want. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to giallo so much looking for the you know the Friday the Thirteenth kill, or you know that that era of special effects kills. I'm looking for this kind of personalized kind of nastiness to them. It's intimate. Yeah, that's right. That's word. Intimate, intimate, and vulgar, and uh, mm-hmm. and and somewhat titillating, uh, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. But I mean that's that's what these films are do at at their at their best. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not really about the mystery so much. Uh, I know a lot of people kind of judge them on the actual story. I, you know, like slasher films, I find the story. Well, I think it's because films, they take up so much time. Yeah, and but I, but but like slasher films, I find the story not always very important to what we're dealing with. I mean, it's really, it's really just a uh, um, you know a murder gallery. Yeah. Uh, for lack of a better term, it's almost like a video game or something yeah. like that. And you're there for that. I mean, uh, when I watch an Italian horror film, I want some gore. I want some uh, questionable acting. I want some good-looking ladies. I want some of my favorite actors. You know, I, I just, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not always looking for. Yeah, I'm not looking for Fellini. I'm not looking to have my mind blown, or mm-hmm. you know, De Sica or somebody like that. I'm not looking to have my mind blown, but I am looking to kind of get down to the basics of what genres offer, which is you know, blood and guts tits and ass those kinds of things i mean and that's what these movies are good for and this one man this one's a like a, it's not a home run but it's like a really solid like double or triple like i mean like it's 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 amazing how well this holds up to this day i was really surprised by that i thought this would look more dated the only thing that really makes this film look dated is the uh ankle socks the uh the kind of ankle scarfs that people wore back in the day when they were the doing leg dancing. warmers yeah the leg warmers yeah ankle socks uh, yeah. Slow and easy. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> but it does. I will say this, just like Bob Le Flambeur, although I can't compare these two films. Uh, in some ways, I'm going to anyway. Uh, there is. It does kind of get caught up in itself a bit toward like the back third, yes. trying to kind of work through its mystery. Yes, and you start to kind of figure it out. Uh, I do think, though, that if you hadn't seen it before, I do think that the killer will come as a bit of a surprise to you, a little bit. But I think, I think it will. There's a giveaway. There's one giveaway. There is. I'm going to be honest with you. I only know about that giveaway because I've seen this movie before. <laughs> yeah. No, this was a first timer for me. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you didn't but know. I, I, I do agree about. that there is there is a giveaway in there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, because it's pretty, it's pretty blatant. Uh, if you're paying attention, yes. it's a pretty blatant giveaway. Yes, but it still works. I mean, it works for what it is. And uh, again, the 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 female characters not always the best actors. I know that uh, he hired mostly dancers. Uh, and the dance sequence, if you watch it, they are kind of out of sync. Which I kind of like that though, because at least it makes sense when they come back, when Jaretta Jaretta comes back, and when Olga Carlotto's comes back. They say we need to work on this more. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, because even as somebody with an untrained eye, you can see that they're out of sequence a little bit, some yeah, of them. Yeah. And like they got the dance, they got the sequence of the dances down, but they're not all in the same sequence. They're not all in, in, in simpatico, so they can say that again. They're not all there. And uh, so you can tell that they have some work to do and stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. man, I, I mean, I really love that opening scene, though. I mean, it just put a smile on my face and it was so good. And that, that actress, that's the only thing she ever did. And uh, man, she is something else, and and just everybody in the movie is is having a lot of fun. Ray Lovelock, uh, he's he's really good in the movie. 
And uh, it's it's a fun movie. How much did I like this movie? I immediately watched the film with commentary. Oh, right really? Now. Yeah, I immediately rewatched it. Wait, who did the commentary on uh, this? One? The guy who wrote this yellow book. Uh, oh, the Howarth. Howarth, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's pretty good. You should listen to it. Get a chance. To check I'm it out. going to. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. He talks about Fulci and about the actresses and actresses and uh, he doesn't talk about any White Snake. Unfortunately, that's that's a uh, Sammy that's a Sammy touch. But uh, it, he's really it really is good. And really, the star of this movie to me is is Fulci and his visuals and and what he brought to it. And I, again, I'll say and I'll kick it over to you. I've really come to appreciate this latter period Fulci stuff. And it's interesting because I think even toward his back end of his life, he thought a lot of people just thought these movies, especially the ones in the 80s, were just junk. And he was just making them to turn a buck. But you can see a well, lot of Fulci here. Yeah. No, I think that I think that he brought it. He always brought a certain level of craft with him, even when um, even when he wasn't really interested. Uh, and I think that that's more of the I think that's more of what makes them good or bad, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in this time, like Manhattan Baby, I can't stand. Yeah. Um, but you know, New great. York Ripper. It looks great, but I don't. I'm not. It looks good, it. yeah. But that's <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. It looks good, but it's just it's just garbage. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, and, and, and that's the sort of thing. And you know, we talk about uh, you know, like you were saying, how uh, people probably shouldn't look for things like uh, sense or or or. Um, any kind of logic in, in uh, the narratives of films like this. And I, I kind of agree with you, but I kind of don't agree with you because I think that you still have to, I mean, if you're going to base, uh, to have any sort of difference between this or that, there has to be, you know, some details that, um, that are different, that are, you know, that distinguish themselves from one another. And I don't think it necessarily has to be the murders because the murders are usually very, 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 very similar. Uh, what makes them a little bit different is the way that they explain these murders, I think. Uh, and I think that that's where that kind of comes in. And I think that as much as, as much as, as much as we would like for them to make sense in this sort of movie, we really, we really don't want them to make sense. Hmm. Yeah, because okay. that's kind of the whole point of them is that they they shouldn't make sense. But then when <laughs> when you get to the ending and you and you see something that's that's just bonkers for whatever reason in in one of these movies, um, you're kind of like, where the fuck did that come from? But that's also sort of the joy of it. Uh, so if they make sense, it's great. But if they don't make sense, I mean, it's kind of a little bit more kind of um, sauce for the goose, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, in certain ways. Um, at least as far as, 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 uh, Giallo goes. I'm looking so. now, I think we've covered nine films from Fulci and one of those got lost conquest. We never got back around to it. We'll probably cover it at some point, but I'm pretty sure we've covered it somewhere between nine and 10 Fulci films, which is easily, I think the most by any director we've covered. So yeah, it could be, it could be, I mean, it's up there. Might, it might it's be up there. Yeah, it's certainly up there. But uh, uh, you know, yeah, we did. No, I don't think we did the psychic though. Uh, don't think you ever got. Yeah, I don't think you I think guys ever did, did. I think we did the beyond, but I don't think we did the psychic. I don't. I don't know. I have to go back and look. It's really hard to remember what when you've been doing it for this for as long as we have. It's really hard to remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what yeah. We've done and what we haven't done. But I do remember some of these. Like I remember City of the Living Dead, and I remember, um, uh, Silver Saddle, the western. I remember that because it stands out. Uh, oddly, we've never covered zombie. The black cat. Uh, for the apocalypse. Yeah, did we cover that? I don't think so. No, I don't think we did. I think we covered. I feel like there was another one. Uh, 
Cat in the Brain? We definitely covered Cat in the Brain. Did you? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we covered that. And we covered uh, yeah, New York Ripper. We didn't do House by the Cemetery, believe it or not. We haven't done that yet. Huh. Anyway, I'll kick it over to you. What did you think of this on your first time watch? Because this is much more interesting coming from you probably than it is for me because this is your first time. Uh, I liked it. I liked it a good bit. Um, you know, one of the first things, of course, uh, that you get in this movie is that, you know, all of the female characters are bitches. Uh, <laughs> yes. With like one exception, right? Well, they're very competitive. So they, well, they that's have one way to say it. Mean streak, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, yeah, and I'm putting the word "bitches" in quotes so I don't <laughs> get yelled at. Yeah, um, yeah bitches get stitches. Yeah, <laughs> oh, they certainly do. Well, they get hat pins in this one. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, I think that uh, you know. Oh, here's one. Uh, when you get to Janice's little solo floor show, oh yeah, right. Oh yeah, it's filled. With wet hair weapon, pelvic thrusting, and a serious, serious focus on her nether regions. Oh yeah. Uh, it's like <laughs> it's like a red light district flash dance, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was also, I think, uh, one of the best looking women in the film. Uh, just to put my pig hat on. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, she, uh, she's a Puerto Rican, uh, from what I understand from the commentary. So. Oh really? Uh, her, her name was what? Uh, was that Belinda? Busado? I can't remember exactly what her name was. No. Uh, oh, crap. Um, damn it. I can't remember who she was. Uh, Carla, Carla Buzanka. Oh, yeah. There we go. Carla Buzanka. Uh, Buzanka. Not to be uh, confused with Larry Zanka. Sounds like um, uh, sounds like a uh, like, uh, slang word for breast. <laughs> Those Buzankas. There we go. Hang on. Baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you didn't know this was going to happen today. Uh, I was chorus. hoping. Look, I get some chorus here. Damn. Here we go. Hey, this movie gets so the lyrics kind of fit. Oh, my unofficial theme to Murder Rock. <laughs> that's that's really classing it up. <laughs> that is. <laughs> uh, but the the Janice character, aside from being you know a stunning looking woman, yeah. I love that uh, when she get, when she goes to her apartment, I love that she screams a second time after it's already revealed that it's just Willie sitting in her apartment looking all dopey. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. they reveal him sitting there. Yeah. She, she screams. They reveal that it's Willie standing there, and then she screams again. I was yeah. just like, oh man, it's so fucked. In like, the history, movie- in the history of actors who have a great dope face, dopey face, Willie, uh, Willie's one of them. Christian Borromeo is one of the ones. But you know, did you not get a strong Killian Murphy vibe from him? Yes, man, indeed. he looks a lot. Him and Killian Murphy look a lot alike, man. Yes, they do. It's amazing. Uh, so, I mean this this movie is on fucking overload. Yes, um, it is the. In my mind, it's the Calvin Klein ad of Jolly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's on ripping off, Yeah, It's ripping off so many other things along the way, it's almost impossible to list them because you don't, you don't even know where to start. <clears throat> um, yeah, it feels like it feels like Fulci like watched a lot of music videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, he just he just chucked in every little snippet. Uh, maybe he like was sitting there and he was kind of going in and out of consciousness, taking naps. And like whenever he would wake up, he would just write down whatever was on the, the TV at the time. Yeah. And he just threw it in there. A lot of mirrors. Um, the ship say that uh, Olga has a lot of mirrors in her apartment, too. A lot. Yes, she does. Jesus. 
<laughs> there's that the the initial photo of uh, Lovelock that we see on the whiskey billboard mm-hmm. looks like he's in mid sentence. Uh, it does not look like a a uh, what we would consider to be a professional uh, billboard uh, photograph. Yes. <laughs> um. So okay, the the Lovelock character comes into the movie, and initially. Olga has visions uh, of him, which brings in a sort of uh, quasi-psychic element like in Seven Notes of Black. Um, yeah, it's that kind of supernatural thing that kind of comes right. in. Right. It, it, it comes in here, and then it, it's kind of – I, I don't want to – I'll leave it at that. Uh, so his character then uh, focuses a theme in the film of fantasy versus reality because he's an actor on the skids. Uh, he's completely at odds with his glamorous image and ads and so on. And I think that his character, when he shows up, it really, it really, really, really stands out as feeling kind of arbitrary. Uh, but that's also, I think, part of what the film is doing, um, is just kind of not being arbitrary, but being uh, devious, let's say, yeah. in certain ways. Uh, I also think that he's an absolute skank. Uh, and he becomes Olga's boy toy in record time. Um, so yeah, I mean, good for Lovelock, I guess, on uh, that one. Uh, speaking of uh, guys who show up in movies, Al Cliver uh, yes. shows up for about a hot second here with a magnificent beard. <laughs> yeah, you really got to be keep your eyes open. But that is the the great Al Cliver. Yes, indeed. Um, so the quote unquote killer makes a phone call not as iconic as new york rippers donald duck but <laughs> no, he no. does make a phone call <laughs> and here's the thing though once they figure out who it was the motive that he gives is let's just say off color yeah. <laughs> um, i'm pretty sure he, is... i'm pretty sure he calls the detective a nerd <laughs> <laughs> he might have but he throws around a couple of other words yes he does that uh, would be frowned upon highly yes uh here and there and everywhere <laughs> You get uh, you get the paralyzed girl with the voyeur fetish and the babysitter getting the creepy phone calls. I mean, yes. is there is there anything that Fulci didn't want to throw into this thing? Yeah, it's like a great, um, it's like a greatest hits package. It's a grab bag. It is it is the it is the candy. It's the Halloween candy sack mm-hmm. of uh, Gialli, possibly. Uh, it has the most annoying doorbell sounds in the history of cinema. We should, are, are in this yeah, movie. Yes, they are pretty bad. You, we should say though too though those that handicapped girl's photos are. Uh, man, they are they they belong in a press kit. Uh, oh, oh, wait a minute, they are from the press kit. <laughs> they do look rather slick. Uh, so here's the thing: is that one of the film's problems, I think, and uh, is that I don't think it has any really clearly defined or compelling protagonist. No. I mean, I guess no uh, that the Carlotto's character is the main character, but not really. Not really. Uh, and the same no. thing with Lovelock. He, he could be the main character, but not really. He shows up, like, I think a half an hour into the thing. Yes. Um, none of the young dancers who we might expect to lead the film are uh, are in there for anything other than to throw us off or get killed. Uh, the cynical cop is too cynical. Um, like, none of the characters feel like Fulci wants to or cares to develop them at all in yeah. that respect. Like, I, not necessarily that we would have to, you know, know their loves and needs and desires or anything, but that we would want to actually follow them along for an hour and a half. So I think the film uh, is is then just basically, you know, it's just bodies dying. Um, well, and, think, you I know, think, maybe and maybe that's part of the point. Yeah. You know? The closest you come is the cop. Probably, yeah. Yeah, that's. Yeah, the, I mean, yeah. and even then, I agree with you. None. Everything. 
it's it's a weird movie in that way. There's like no real protagonist to <laughs> to get behind. It's just it's a strange. No, film. there isn't. There isn't. And, and speaking of arbitrary, I mean, there's that bit with the uh, the slide projector, oh, which yeah. is is yeah, really yeah. pretty clever. But it just also feels really, really arbitrary. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, it's like, oh, well, look, this was backwards. How the fuck do you know, man? There's no, <laughs> there's no other. What are you, what are you using as a point of reference on this one? Uh, I like the use of uh, cameras and monitor screens. Uh, I like that, and this is where I think you know I was talking about Fulci having a bit of thoughtfulness. Um, is because you know he's he's showing us in the movie that we can't trust what these things are showing us necessarily these monitors these cameras all of these mirrors um you know i i think that he he does do that on purpose i think that it's you know it's one of those things where he does show a level of care and thoughtfulness and craft um i think that the finale to this thing and the explanation going back to what i was talking about earlier actually does make a small amount of sense uh, which you know is kind of rare for Giallo and rarer still for Fulci, and I think it even has a little bit of poetry to it uh, in certain ways. Uh, the ending does. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it has a little more uh, more impact than you might initially get out of, uh, or you might expect out of something like this. Uh-huh, and I think uh-huh. that for me, um, I think that uh, you know, ultimately this one sits in the middle uh, of Fulci's Giallo extremes. Um, for me on this one, uh, it's not as measured and serious as something like seven knots in black. Uh, and it's not as over the top and gloriously ludicrous as New York Ripper. Um, you know, the, like I said, the plot just kind of leaps between red herring revelations, dance class melodrama, and then there's the occasional murder. Yeah. Uh, and then we get some disco. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but, but, you know, when it satisfies, I think it really satisfies. Um, but I think that the part of the problem is that it also moves along and fits and starts. Uh, so it kind of has a, a dulled edge on the pacing. And I think that, again, going back to not really having a clearly defined protagonist to follow along with, I think that that hurts it mm-hmm. in that respect because we don't, you know, we're jumping between so many people that we don't give a shit about yeah. um, that ultimately it starts to wear on you just a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean the whole so, the whole point of watching this movie, really, and seeing it again this time, the whole point of watching it is the giallo itself. Not there is no attachment whatsoever to any character no. in the movie whatsoever. No, no, no. Yeah, no. Everybody's at arm's length in this thing. It's purely the the fact that you're watching is giallo. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that being said, I mean, yeah, I, I really like this one. Like I said, I think it sits in the middle of, uh, of his extremes. Uh, and even that, um, for the elements that work really w- well, that work well, work extraordinarily well in this thing. So I think that it's absolutely worth a see, uh, worth a, a view. Um, and it certainly deserves to be talked about a little bit more than it, uh, than it does in his, uh, filmography. Um, uh, do, do, do. Yeah, I mean that's that's all the notes I got. I kick it over to you for make or breaks, unless you got anything else to add. No, don't have anything more to add. Uh, like I said, I will say the commentary track is really good, and there's a good interview with Jaretta Jaretta on there. She's one of the most optimistic people you'll see. <laughs> uh, but th- there's some good stuff on there, so uh, check it out. That this is a good release, uh, and I'm always most impressed with labels when they put like a little, little bit of love into something that you know most people wouldn't even think to put a little bit of love into. Like I expect a lot of love from the Bicycle Thieves or Eight and a Half or something like that, but if you'd have told me there'd be a special edition Blu-ray release of Murder Rock uh, back when Blu-ray started to hit, I'd be like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. 
but there it is. Here it is. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, make or break. I really love that opening. Uh, it's really good. Uh, well, mostly from the dance sequence to the first murder. The very opening is kind of weird <laughs> with the break dance and then the kind of love letter to New York that it is. But it's fun too in its weird way. Um, but yeah, that opening murder sequence is really, really good. It kind of sets the tone for the whole movie. And most of the murder sequences are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one is in particular kind of striking. MVT for this one is pretty easy for me. It's Fulci. Because really he is the star of this movie. Because like you said, there's not really any characters to kind of get behind. Uh, maybe the closest you get is uh, the, uh, the, t- the detective character. I mean, that was easy for me to say, wasn't it? So here's, the, <laughs> here's that piece of trivia I was telling you. He was going to make a trilogy called Trilogia della Musica. Uh, this would have been followed the film that would have followed this would have been killer samba and then thrilling blues oh my so murder rock killer samba thrilling blues you gotta wonder if uh wouldn't devil's honey have been around this uh devil's honey feels like that wasn't him was that it was it was partially him i think that was one that he was directing when he passed away or he was working on Uh, okay okay but i also think that uh yeah devil's honey doesn't have a lot of saxophone stuff in it yeah 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 so maybe that was part of you know thrilling blues or something maybe he had written this was devil's honey was 86 yeah yeah yeah, no i think it was well maybe that wasn't the last one he did maybe that was wasn't it that mass film he there's a lot of films attached to him that came out after he passed away right 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 right. it's like uh you know he's almost like uh i can't think of the other director that i happened to well he's kind of like karloff the actor in a lot of ways had films coming out after he was gone Mm -hmm. um so I don't remember which film it was that he passed away on, but maybe I thought it was that. I thought it said zomb- I don't know. Zombie three. Don't know. Don't know for sure. I mean, he worked up until the end. He worked up and well, he died in ninety six. Like, that can't be right. And Wax Mask came out in ninety seven. So I guess it was Wax Mask that he di- that he died making. Well, no, <laughs> says no, because he didn't make that. He didn't direct that. His last thing, his last directorial credit is Door to Silence. Yes. Well, she directed as H. Simon Kitte. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, Cat in the Brain was 1990. Yeah, Cat in the Brain is really the last one I remember him being, like, really fully behind. Yeah. Uh, well, House of Clocks and the other one was, I think, for TV. Yeah. Uh, Cat in the Brain, Demonia. Demonia, which I've never seen. Neither have I. Uh, or Voices from Beyond, I don't think I've seen. Yeah, so I don't know how much of Demonia he did. It looks interesting. It looks like a mm-hmm. possession film. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, it would have been fun. It still would have been fun for him to have, you know, that music trilogy. I think it would have been fun anyway. But he worked a lot. Yeah, Devil Hunt, Devil's Honey was right after this. So you know what? Maybe the Devil's Honey was. Maybe that was. Intended he, to be. Yeah, because he didn't work for two years, which is kind of rare. He He worked all the time. Like, he'd make two or three movies a year. And then he got really sick with diabetes and some other issues in 84 when he was making this. Right, and he didn't come back till '86, and so maybe the Devil's Honey was some of that. It'd be interesting to talk about the Devil's Honey. That's a that's a weird one. Uh, there's another one I haven't seen. Yeah, that's a weird one. Um, yeah, maybe maybe someday. Maybe. Yep. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of sex in that one. A lot of <laughs> sex and torture. So right up our alley, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so Fulci and my score for the film, you know, it sounds a little lower than how much fun I had with the movie, but I mean, the movie is a, 
a bit of a mess in some ways and, and kind mm-hmm. of silly, but I'll get, I'll go 7.25 on this. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Uh, we are just about a hundred percent, uh, in step on this one. Make or break for me is the first murder. Um, it really is good enough to be on any filmmaker's highlight reel. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and uh, yeah, once you see it, you'll know why. Uh, MVT, yeah, it's faulty. Sure, he could be, you know, as trashy and dumb as any filmmaker ever. But when he actually tries, uh, I think his skills shine quite brightly. And I think they do several times here in this movie. Um, score for me is uh, right on par with you, seven point two five out of ten. Uh, like I said, this is kind of middle ground uh, between his uh, his extremes, uh, and I think that it works pretty well for what it is, even though it is a mess. Um, there really is a lot to recommend it. Just on, uh, it, it is certainly memorable. You yes. will not. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you will forget it anytime soon. No, you will not. <laughs> even, even amongst uh, Jolly films, I think it, it's it's a bit of a standout in some ways. Yes, I would agree with that. I would agree with and that. And certainly uh, later cycle Jolly films, it's <clears throat> it's certainly a standout there. All right, so yeah, man, go over to Dialogue DVD and pick these things up. These things are. This is good, good, good choices this week. And some they nice are waiting features. for you to pick them up. Buy them, buy them all. Buy everything. Yes, buy everything. Uh, <laughs> uh, next week, we already know what we're covering next week, uh, hopefully. Uh, Will's yeah. should be back, so I'm just going to go ahead and say we programmed what we were planning on doing. Uh-huh. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. A couple of films. Yeah. It almost feels like Will has his films in alphabetical order he'd like to talk about. Because <laughs> he, he picked two films to start with an A. <laughs> Almost like he just said, hey, I'm going to start at the top because I haven't been on the show for a long time. Uh, but we're going to be doing uh, Angel Fist uh, from Sirio Santiago, uh, which ought to be a fun conversation, and American Gigolo from Paul Schrader. Mm-hmm. So we should have some fun. It should be a good show. Uh, and hopefully that is what we will be doing. I thought we're going to move forward with it either way, I think. so. Um, we hope you enjoyed the show. I got to get off here because I hear the pitter patter of little feet, which means I got a little one looking for me. Uh, I hear her running around upstairs. <laughs> she'll go look in my, she'll look in the room I sleep in. Um, uh, cause I sleep by myself cause I'm a snorer uh-huh. and, uh, she'll look in the room uh, where I sleep and, uh, if she can't find me, she just starts running, running through the house looking for me. <laughs> it's kind of cute, but I kind of feel bad for her too. Cause you know, you gotta imagine in her head, it's like, where's dad, you know? Um, all right. Uh, that is everything, man. We hope you all enjoy. Again, go to diebogdvd.com, pick up all your hard to find genre needs, tell them GGTMC sent you, all that good stuff. We'll be back next week, and I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com, and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 